Hey, you ever needed something for your home but don't have the cash or credit to pay for it? You can do that at Aaron's. Yep, you can rent to own appliances like washers, dryers, or refrigerators, furniture for your living room or bedroom, even tech. Plus, Aaron's has great brands like HP, Samsung, and Ashley. Life's always changing. Keep it, return it, upgrade it. Aaron's fits your life instead of the other way around. So check out your nearest Aaron's store or visit Aaron's.com to see what I'm talking about. Approval isn't guaranteed and some restrictions apply. You got to see your local store for details. On X Hunt Elite is worth every penny. It really is. Every hunt, every planning session, every gear purchase, I was on it already today. With your Elite membership, you will get application and draw odd tools, exclusive pro deals on gear from the industry's best, exclusive mapping and scouting tools, and last but not least, access to nationwide coverage. And now Canada. Onyx Hunt Elite will make you more successful on your next hunt. Try Onyx Hunt free for seven days or go to onyxmaps.com slash hunt and use code MEATEATER for 20% off your new Elite membership. Decked Drawer Systems. I've always loved Decked, as is, but it's even better now because they just redesigned their drawer system in storage cases from the ground up. They got the Deco case line. These cases are as tough, if not tougher, than Pelican case or Go boxes. Totally waterproof and dustproof. You can literally run over them in your truck and they will be fine. High quality latches and handles make them really easy to use. They look great. They are made in the USA. To check it out, go to decked.com slash meat eater. Get yourself free shipping. This is the Meat Eater Podcast coming at you shirtless, severely bug-bitten, and in my case, underwearless. Meat Hunt, the Meat Eater Podcast. You can't predict anything. Presented by First Light, creating proven, versatile hunting apparel from merino base layers to technical outerwear for every hunt. First Light, go farther, stay longer. All right, everybody, this is a special, kind of like a literary, it's like a literary and biology special edition. Joined here by Carmen Van Bianchi, who's here for the third damn time. Yeah. What episode numbers were you in before? I want to look. I don't know. 54 and 90, 54 and 94. All right. It's and then you like missed, then you missed a hundred and some episodes <laughs> <laughs> and now you're back, but, uh, we need to check in with you Yeah, because I feel like we, um, I feel like, uh, you know, we get all these questions all the time. People be like, how can I have a job in the outdoors or how do you be a this or that? So you're our case study. Okay. Well, it's not been, uh, any sort of traditional path. But I you've suppose. arrived now. I think you've arrived now. I don't know if I've arrived. I don't know if I've arrived, Dude, but you, like you, you, uh, trap animals for a living, man. Okay. I'll give you that. Yeah. I have That's a ton of fun. Yeah. I have, Do you I'm have a re- year round position? No. Ah, well, damn it. Really? Nah. <laughs> we'll get to that. Huh? But okay. you're still alive. You're obviously <laughs> feeding yourself and you're clothed and whatnot. So yeah. Yeah. Markers of success. Yeah. We make it work. Um, I, but it's a hodgepodge. Although I am starting a new chapter and hopefully this is going to be a full time, the rest of my time deal. So have, have your, if, if the, if you might, I mean, you might have to lie because I want this to look positive no matter what, but okay. has, have any opportunities, has this, has coming on the show to explain your professional path opened any doors? Don't lie. 
I gotta be honest, no. Damn it, really? Because <laughs> I felt like I really like laid it on thick. And that was, you know, hmm. so sweet of you. But um, I mean, I've got, I more get my jobs, you know, just based on my my skills. And stuff. Oh, <laughs> no one cares about that kind of stuff. L- listen, no, we were half good. of that's our actually... listenership back probably the last time Carmen was, was on trying the show. to get those jobs. Yeah. So. <laughs> So now, you know, we have twice the listenership. It probably made it worse for Carmen because the bunch of dudes are like, dude, I'm going to try to get that job. I'm going to go into that line. I'm going to go into that line of work. Right. Yeah. That's good. So everything you do, it's like a meritocracy. It's a, it's a meritocracy in your field. Things. Yeah. And, and I've had, I've been really fortunate to have some regular uh, field jobs for the last years. I mean, I think since we did the last podcast i've been working on the same project and so that's been really nice just not having to worry every season about what the next thing is going to be and where i'm going to live um so so that was really nice and now that project is just about completely wound up and um three of my colleagues and friends from that that project well two of them there's three of us are starting a um a nonprofit doing independent wildlife research so that's the next chapter that's the next Uh, chapter we'll get to that Ooh, that's good. That's titillating. <laughs> Took the word right out of my mouth. Yeah. Uh, also joined by, well, Cal's here. Hello. Fresh off of babysitting my dog. Um, Giannis is here. Fresh off a big, huge run this morning. Mm-hmm. I was just getting up and I got a picture from a friend of mine. Who, did he? Did you just run into him up on top of that mountain? No, we... Uh, or we, you ran up there together? We ran up there together. We hiked fast up there together. Oh, you guys fat speed hiked? Mm-hmm. That's good. We kind of ran down. Phil, here, <laughs> say something for yourself, Phil. You you don't sound very thrilled that I'm in the room. <laughs> I guess Phil's here. I guess for some reason. And then a uh, very special guest to Kathy Raven, whose brand new book is out yesterday. Yes, I heard you guys sold. So the book's called Fox and I. It is. And my exposure to it is your publisher. Cindy Spiegel took, um, you know, threw me a real, she, I don't think she would describe it this way, but threw me a real lifeline many years ago, bought my second book. I published with her imprint at Random House for a long time. They've gone on to now start their own publishing venture. You're, I think, their first book? I am their first book. So Spiegel and Grau. It's with Spiegel and Growl. Spiegel and Growl used to be an imprint at Random House, but yes. now it's a very exciting new venture. Yes. Um, you were their first book. I heard you guys have uh, you've sold the book to 11 different countries. I haven't kept track because that's not my thing, but it's been a lot of countries. Russia picked it up and Korea and Italy and Germany and Man. Waiting for Japan. So, does this, if you can put in a plug. <laughs> oh, a lot of good populations in those countries. So, well, so you hear that, you, you people in Japan. Um, yeah. So, it'll be widely translated. <laughs> yes. Even, I'm really happy that even the English folks decided to translate it. And I don't know if the Australians and New Zealands have, but I think that's really helpful because when I watch. English, I guess Cindy told you I don't have a TV or a stream or anything like that, but I buy DVDs and mostly the DVDs I buy for entertainment are English ones. And I have to watch them with the, um, you know, the closed captioning because I don't understand what they're saying. So I think English people probably don't understand all of my 
vocabulary and such. So they hired a professional to translate it from American to English, and I'm really happy about that. But hold on a minute. Do you mean like the print version? Yeah, uh-huh. Yeah. Really? Just so they yeah, do the I little spelling? They, they do the little they spelling an tweaks That's and all that? That's a good question about the audio. Yeah, the spelling's different, and I think some of the slang, I might have used the word oh, term they... mother country at one point, and I remember they wrote and said, so when you say the mother I was being facetious. When you said the mother country, were you talking about us? I said, yeah, and there was something else that... Um, oh, I got it. Yeah. <laughs> so, so, yeah, they make they some must minor have adjustments. Changed, yeah, some minor cool. adjustments. So the folks over there, hope they didn't cut out all my stuff about fox hunting. But I talked about England and the fox hunters and Downton Abbey and, uh, huh. and the, all that. Yeah, they're trying so, to wash their hands with the whole fox, <laughs> the, the whole fox hunting they scene over there. <laughs> made that look a little nicer, but... Yeah. Uh, yeah, that's good. So it's been translated to a lot of different languages and different accents. <laughs> that's great. So we're, we're going to talk about that book in a little bit, too. But first, got to talk about another thing. Now, listen, I don't want you to take this the wrong way. Uh-oh. Yeah. I think I'm everyone should go but... buy your book. Oh. But well, we're going to well. promote, like, we have to promote a, a thing of ours. Sure. So we talked about a week ago. I don't know when the hell. I don't know. A while ago. A couple weeks. No, it's out right now. The close, the close calls. Listen, yeah. If you listen to this show on a regular basis, you heard us, uh, um, getting all excited and explaining our audio book. Yeah, I heard somebody say that an I'm audio interested. original, like an immersive audio experience. It's not available in print. You have to listen to it. Six hours long. Um, but I, I just want to give everybody a taste of it. So this is what like. This is a story. I heard this story. Um, I heard a version of this story, I think from Callahan. Did you originally tell me this story? You had some details wrong, Cal. Uh, That's because I never heard the story. You heard a story about the story. Brody was like, hey, did you hear about that? And I'm like, oh, yeah, that's (laughs) this guy. He's like, well, do you have his phone number? I was like, oh, no, but he used to work for Pheasants Forever. Yeah. And I know a bunch of folks in that organization, so I'd, I'd... one email tracked down his cell phone number and and uh, and and I still haven't heard the story. Yeah, Info. so you so, still haven't heard the damn story? No. Yeah. No. Okay. It's a guy named Sam Lowry. He's a game warden in Arizona. Before we, we jump into this, do you want to do a quick summary of what this is, what yeah. the whole project project is in case they missed the last time you brought it up? Are you gonna edit that out or leave that in, Phil? I'm gonna leave it in. Your little comment there? Yeah. yeah. Sure. That's called <laughs> now Phil's directing. Now Phil's big time producer, huh? Is that what's going on over there? Director. Big time director I, I, over I, there? I, I would never take that away from Corinne. Because Corinne's out of town. Now Phil's going to act like <laughs> big time Mr. Director. All right, Phil. Phil's taking jobs away from the folks who answer listener emails. Yep. Right you know, now. my dad has a story about he was a, when he was a little kid, he had a job as a soda jerk. And when he came back from the war, he beat the guy up who had that job. Wow, that's yeah. that's to that get sounds job unnecessary. <laughs> Found out that the guy had the job. The guy didn't want to give it back. My dad beat him up. Do you, what's your opinion on that? So do you, do you think your back, dad had the right to take his job back? He felt that you wouldn't that you would if a veteran was returning. Got it. Okay, that you would very quickly step aside mm-hmm. and not make a play to keep the job. What if you were in that new soda jerk's position and some guy came in and said, "Hey, I, I want my job back." I would have said, "Here's the uh, apron." Okay. That guy wants a vanilla soda. <laughs> <laughs> Point being, Krim might come back and beat your ass, Phil. But I'll take that little directing. <laughs> I'll take that little directing comment, and I will. Um, it's called 
Meat Eaters Campfire Stories Close Calls. And it is about, it's a, it's a long, it's a, it's a collection of a wide variety of different storytellers from mountaineers, game wardens, hunters, spear fishermen. I don't know. Who else is in there? My daughter has a cameo. Yeah, that's right. She did a great job. Um, about close calls, near death experiences and close calls in the wild and kind of the way, like sort of the physiology that goes into it, the psychology that goes into close calls, the way close calls tend to live with you and haunt you. Um, and one of them, just to give you a taste of what this is all about, is the story of a game warden named Sam Lowry, who was operating in Arizona. And we described this before as he has a run-in with a sociopathic, oozy-wielding elk poacher. So take a listen and see what you think. The Mud Puddle. Over the years, I've had the occasion to speak with several game wardens on the subject of poaching. Among the most interesting of these conversations was my talk with a warden who studied what he called super poachers. Super poachers, he found, almost always exhibit sociopathic tendencies. They commit their crimes very quietly. They don't show off photos or brag about the animals they poached on social media, and they don't tend to poach for material gain. The real thrill for them is killing animals illegally and doing so without getting caught. The hunt for one such serial poacher is the focus of this next story from Sam Lowry, a retired game warden. Sam told us that most of the time he was dealing with normal people who might have made a minor honest mistake along with the occasional poacher who is deliberately flouting the rules for profit. In this case, though, he was playing cat and mouse with a dangerous sociopath. My name is Sam Lowry. I've held different positions with the federal and state wildlife agencies, spanning about a 40-year career in wildlife. Back in about 1993 or so, I was the wildlife manager for what they called Unit 1 and 3B in northern Arizona. Closest larger town would be Sholo, Arizona. Most people think Arizona is filled with saguaro cacti and desert, and yet in reality there's there's a beautiful uh, high country element of mixed conifer and aspens, and that was a district that I was responsible for that uh, held a, a very, very healthy elk population. In fact, you know, probably world-renowned uh, units for pursuing elk in that particular region of the White Mountains. So usually by springtime of every year, we were looking forward to turkey season uh, with spring gobblers gobbling everywhere. And uh, all the big game seasons were over in terms of elk and deer and bighorn sheep and what have you. And things, for the most part, started to slow down. Um, with the exception of one evening, I got a call, and this would have been about in March, that one of our local outfitters who lives quite a ways out into the boonies heard some shots and uh, reported it to Game and Fish. We had a 24-hour hotline where they could call, and of course that information came back to me that these shots were fired at night 
um, sounded like small caliber and fully automatic, which is very unusual for the area we were in. I knew the, the caller, so I contacted him the next day and determined the location he was, he was referring to. And I went out there, and uh, sure enough, I found two elk laying down. They were both uh, probably within eight hours had been shot. As normally, you take your metal detector and, and look the carcasses over. You look for any places where the vehicle, the suspect vehicle would have pulled off the road. You want to look for any shell casings in the road. You want to look for anything that can give you any idea of, of evidence to, to link whoever shot these elk to a person. Unfortunately, there was nothing. Probably about two weeks later, where we received another call, shots being fired at night and general location, but no specifics. I responded to that one the next day as well and found two cow elk. One was alive, was still kicking. When uh, a, a game warden or a wildlife officer comes in contact with a, an animal that's been poached, what we rely on is, is evidence. You know, a lot of times these violators are out there at night partying too and they'll throw beer cans out or pop cans or, you know, you look for anything that might be able to lead you to an individual down the road. And there was never anything on the on this particular guy's M.O. The, the evidence was always very lacking. With this particular case, I, I was getting pretty bothered because if you think you found this would have been the fifth elk, um, they looked like they were being shot with 22 caliber as the projectiles that I was able to carve out of the elk. How many did we not find? So my, my uh, aggravation started to grow. I wanted to catch this guy. So I, I actually made a decision to call a reporter while I was going to begin performing the necropsies on these elk. Told him we were, again out looking at these elk poachings and, and hoping that an article in the paper would stimulate some folks to maybe step forward and put an end to who's doing this. The one that was still alive I dispatched, which is, you know, one of the duties officers have to do once in a while, never pleasant, but you put the animal out of its misery. And the reporter showed up and, and walked out to the field. I remember he looked down at me and he, he, he looked like he was going to kind of maybe get sick. And not that we're hardened that much, but to him, I imagine it was a it was a pretty spectacular, nasty scene. The one that was alive had been kicking all night, trying to get itself up, so it had had made this kind of circle depression of of soil around it. And so he's asking me as I'm carving into these things about what I'm looking for, and sure enough, I was able to locate a couple again, twenty two caliber slugs that were mostly fragments at that point. One might wonder, you know, how did, how did a 22 kill an elk? Well, when you hit them with two or three of them and a couple of them probably in the spinal cord, uh, it can drop them. So it, it, it certainly does. I uh, reached down into the, the uh, more of the digestive area, the cavity, and uh, this again was in March. And... Uh, not the prettiest thing in the world, but I reached in and grabbed about a jackrabbit-sized fetus from one of the cow elk, and I laid it up on the rib cage and looked him in the eye and said, you know, this isn't three elk. 
This is six elk. And that's what really kind of turned him white. And uh, by the end of the necropsy, I had three, uh, you know, two foot long fetuses laying on the rib cage of this one elk. And I thought, you know, if that doesn't stimulate someone to come forward and help me nab the guy doing this or guys doing this, I don't know what can. And the article did come out. And uh, all I got was feedback from the, the public that we'll do everything we can to help you catch this guy. But no information ever led to that from that uh, necropsy. You know, I can't not tell a, a little piece of a story that comes to mind about this individual poaching all these elk. And, and the first thing you want to do as a, as a warden is catch the guy or guys. And an old mentor of mine, a warden had been around for many, many years. We called him the herd bull. And we were referred to as satellite bulls. And he used to always tell us satellite bulls to walk to the dance and you'll finally get to dance. Don't run to the dance. And so that message to me always said to me to just slow down and eventually the person is going to make a mistake. And uh, I kept going back to my old mentor thinking, Someday, somewhere, this guy is going to mess up, and I'm going to catch him. So after the newspaper article came out, nothing ever turned up. Things were, were cold. And uh, in fact, there was a point at which I kind of thought maybe the person moved away, which could be a good thing. At least the more elk were going to get tipped over. My wife and I uh, lived in a little town called Vernon, and it was about 20 miles from a little larger town called Sholo. And every once in a while, this was prior to us having any, any children, we'd head on into a, the big town for Saturday night. On one particular Saturday night, we took off to Bill's Bar, famous little tavern in, in Sholo, Arizona. In fact, I had a, another story where some old codgers back in the 60s backed up to the back door of Bill's Bar and let a mountain lion loose into a crowd of, of patrons. And, uh, and you didn't go in there very often without probably seeing some kind of fisticuffs and perks. So you, you had to be a big, big broad-shouldered, burly bookaroo working a wide-open wind with wilderness to get in there. So my wife and I did, and we... we uh, Went, had dinner, went dancing, and luckily that night there weren't too many cold beers going down the throat, but enough to have a fun night. And we were headed home after closing about one o'clock in the morning, about a 20-mile drive to our little cabin. And uh, about five miles from home, I could look up into the vicinity of where all the elk poachings were. And my gosh, there was a spotlight being thrown around. Spotlights are, are just very, very uh, distincting in, in being able to say that's not your headlights. You, headlights, when vehicles drive, don't sweep across a hillside as if they're searching for something. It's kind of like a searchlight, if you will. And I could see that spotlight being kind of covering different hillsides and, and no, no doubt in my mind, there was some uh, activity going on. So I know my, my little bride wasn't happy, but I decided to, to hurry on home and, and put the uniform on and go out and get this guy. Um, I certainly wasn't in any 
condition that would prevent me from from doing that. So I I made the decision I'm going to go suit up and and catch this guy. Too good of an opportunity. And jumped in my game and fish truck and notified the dispatch that I'd be out attempting to uh, make contact with this potential elk poacher or spotlighter and took off and uh, had about a five mile drive to get to where I could see the spotlight working and in those days we had what you call a blackout light that would go to the front bumper of your game and fish truck and it would allow you to slowly proceed down a dirt road without any other lights on it was a military device that we've got for all the officers in, in the state. So I proceeded kind of in the direction of this spotlighter, occasionally stopping and listening. And I, you know, it was difficult to tell. Sometimes I thought I heard rapid fire, kind of automatic weapon, if you will. And sometimes it, it was more of a crack, cracking noise, like more of a report of a rifle. But nonetheless, I kept inching my way to where I thought this guy was working which is a Forest Service road uh, home to, you know, 500 elk running in and out of that vicinity that time of year. So I positioned my game and fish truck at the end of that and thought, I'm going to get him. He's going to come out. And now you start to feel the old adrenaline coming. You're you're going into full-blown enforcement mode, and you're pretty sure you're going to make a stop on what was likely to be the worst poacher I'd ever encountered. And then all of a sudden the lights changed and they went they went a different way. They were going back the same way, but they then turned west, which, you know, when you're when you're responsible for these districts, you know that country like the back of your hand. And and I knew that he turned on what I assumed was this little dead end two-track road. And I need to reposition myself to that road. And now I'll have him blocked in. So I did. And when I got to that road, there was a, a little dip onto this other two-track road. There was a dip with a mud puddle, and it was probably 12 feet across, you know, 10 feet wide, maybe eight inches deep. And if a vehicle goes through that mud puddle, you can tell there's going to be bubbles in it or wash out on the other side where water dripped down from the frame. And so I exited my game of fish truck and I grabbed a flashlight and I just slowly approached that mud puddle and I got down on my knees and I kind of muffled the light and could see no bubbles. And then I, I kind of walked over to the other side and looked on the, the, where the vehicle would have driven through and there's no tracks. There's no sign of any washout. I, I just was bewildered. I thought this guy didn't go down this road. So I was discouraged, and you know, this has probably been an hour now that I've been pursuing this guy, thinking I'm going to get him, and he gave me the slip. So I got my game fish truck and backed out and went back on the other side of the 267 road all the way out towards Vernon. Uh, I was done for the night, and, and the only thing I can remember is when, when I got back to the, the cabin that night, my wife was, uh, let's just say, happy to see me. They're not necessarily excited about the fact I'm running out to to catch a bad guy at two in the morning. So after that happened, I was again discouraged. And I thought, when when am I going to get another break? I, I just don't know. But that uh, that night I thought I had him, but he slipped away. So following that, that evening where I felt I 
was the closest at catching this guy. Things continued on. We we ended up getting a couple more calls on elk that were shot. Um, no, again, no no leads. And I I do recall the 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 vicinity though. It was a very localized area, you know, all right around that two sixty seven road that I found the spotlighter on. Um, and those elk would soon be moving out of their winter range up into the north range, up into their, their summer country. So we kind of felt things would be, be slowing down. But after an elk or two more, it just stopped. And while I thought maybe it had to do with that migration to higher country, there was still enough elk in that lower range to, to warrant some shooting if the guy was still around. But I felt like it, it just stopped and pretty much kind of stamped it case case unsolved. We, we couldn't uh, put this one behind us. And there was a lot of, lot of people trying to, to make this case work, never did. And I just felt it was, it was, it was on, onward to the next one then. That, that's going to um, be one for the books. And out of the blue one day, uh, our investigator called me and said, hey, we got a weird call today from a narcotics agent up in Holbrook, which is a town about 40 miles north of Vernon. And he said, we have a guy in custody that is being held on some pretty serious uh, drug trafficking charges and uh, attempted homicide charges, uh, most likely going to be moved to Albuquerque, but he's in our holding facility. And during interviews, he mentioned something about shooting a bunch of elk in the Vernon area. And so this uh, narcotics agent asked our investigator if we had any interest in, in interviewing him. And of course, I jumped at the opportunity. I thought to myself, if this is, if this is the guy, I can finally maybe get some closure to this, and it's not going to be a citation for killing 15 elk out of season it's this guy's going away probably to a much bigger house so yeah i want to go i want to go visit and i want to go talk to him and the narcotics agent relayed to our investigator that he's a pretty strange duck and uh you might want to bring him a baby ruth candy bar because he, he he likes candy bars and if you bring him that he he might might be willing to talk to you so we did. I, I stopped at the store, got a Baby Ruth candy bar, and I wore civilian clothes so I didn't intimidate him at all with the uniform and drove to Holbrook and checked in with the, the officers there and let them know what I was there for to, to interview the suspect. His name was Oki. And uh, other than that, I didn't have any more details other than the fact that he was being held on pretty serious charges. He was running a little meth lab and some, some involvement in uh, a murder case in Albuquerque, something to do with a past girlfriend or, or something of, of that nature. But he was being held on, on both narcotics and homicide charges. So they led me down this, you know, kind of sterile hallway and got me into an interrogation room uh, where I sat and then... Five minutes or so passed, and the door opens up, and here's this straggly-looking character in a orange jumpsuit. He had uh, what we call a transport belt around his waist with his 
handcuffs on attached to that transport belt so you can't swing your arms at all. He's, he's, uh, he's confined. Kind of looked at me like, you know, absolute careless. He didn't have any regard for, you know, what I was there for, obviously. But the officer that led him into the room explained that, you know, I was with Game and Fish and I just wanted to talk to him about some of the unsolved elk poachings we had in the White Mountains. And he reluctantly sat down and he kind of just stared at me like he was looking through the back of my skull. And he had these kind of dark, steely looking eyes. He just, you know, which was kind of rang the old sociopath in my mind that this guy doesn't really care much about me or what he's about to tell me. So I introduced myself, Oki. I'm Sam Lowry. I'm with Arizona Game and Fish. And I I know you're in here for things uh, more serious that I want to talk to you about, but I really wanted to visit with you a little bit about something you told the officers about your elk poaching in, in Vernon. And he kind of let out a little sigh and sat back in his chair almost to almost relax a little more. He looked right at me, just, again, these, these cold, shark-like eyes. And, yeah, that was me. I said, what do you mean that was you? I mean, what? I was the one. I shot probably 30 elk up there, and you guys, you guys could never catch me. And I kind of leaned in and wanted to find out why, and, and so what was the cause, and and he stopped me and looked and said, I'll tell you one thing, though. You got a warden out there with angel wings. And I I kind of paused myself, and I thought, well, what, what do you mean there, Oki? What, what do you mean by that? And he said, well, one night, he said, one of your guys was, was, was after me. He, he darn near had me, and he said, I played cat and mouse for a little while, and he came down this two-track road where there was a big mud puddle, and he said, I was parked probably 50 yards from that behind a big juniper tree. And that dumb bastard got out of his truck and walked up to the mud puddle with his flashlight like he was some kind of hero. And uh, I had made the decision. If he comes through that mud puddle, I'm going to spray him. And I had to pause. I, I mean, he probably saw my face. I said, spray him what you know what 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 do you mean he said i have an uzi that's what i was shooting those elk with and whether he came across on foot or in vehicle that was going to be his last night but strangely enough that guy got in his truck and turned away maybe he knew i was down there and i have chills on my neck telling you guys that story i i can remember just walking out of that room that day thinking holy mackerel uh, that was me uh whatever reasons and I can't explain it to you why it didn't look like he had driven through that mud puddle, but he had, and he was 50 feet or 50 yards from me, ready to take me out. So we had talked a little more, you know, I, I was, I was, I was pretty much shot, <laughs> no pun intended. I thought, you know what, uh, I, I just want to go home and hug my wife. But I tried to end the interview. There was no doubt in my mind it was him. He was on meth. He told me he was cooking meth up in a little cabin not far from where he was doing all the shooting. He was by himself, and he just liked to kill stuff. As he told me, I like to kill shit. And uh, no remorse, no, no, nothing. And I never did recover the Uzi to match those bullets with, but I'll never forget them, you know, 
walking him back down the hallway. And he kind of looked up over his shoulder, looked back at me one more time, not knowing that I was that angel. <laughs> I was that game warden that had wings that night. And I never let him know that anyway. But he walked away, and that was never to be seen again. Old Oaky. Oh, he ate the candy bar, too. Okay, there you have it, ladies and gentlemen. That's just one little sampling. One little sampling off of the broader project. Again, like I said, it's five, six hours long. 16 stories. There's one of them. They're all good. So go out and get that. It's available now. That's for your listening. Kathy Raven's book's for your reading. That's for your listening. Yeah. Well, it's available for pre-order right now. Tomorrow, it's available to buy. Is that how it works? Yeah. Yeah. So pre-order now, and it'll just magically show up. Mm-hmm. <laughs> As a download. As a download. Um, We're going to continue. So when you hear that story and you go listen to the broader story, let us know about your crazy stories. Because when you send an email in, just send it in and it says like a crazy ass story as a subject line, and we might hunt you down because we like that kind of story like you just heard. Yeah, we liked working on this project. That was fun. Oh, yeah. It's tracking people down was great. Yeah. Makes you think about things all the time, though, because a lot of these stories involve like very micro, like incidents and like just small things that happen that you know, make the whole day have a much different outcome. And so when I know when I'm out in the woods and just taking a step on a rock that's might be over a precipice or something, it makes me think twice after hearing some of these stories. Yeah. It was Yanni's Jan, in the Yanni's in the project because people that listen to this show are familiar with maybe familiar with a couple episodes we had called the Meat Tree Part One and Part Two. We uh revisit that story. And some aftermath issues from that story. And if that day hadn't happened, if that minute hadn't happened, where we had a, a very close encounter with a, with a brown bear that Yanni smacked in the face with a set of trekking poles, um, this book, this audio project wouldn't exist. Like that set me down the path of uh, like being haunted by that day, set me down the path of kind of exploring what close calls do to a do to you and how they live in your mind. What do you think, Phil? That was great. We good to move on? <clears throat> as, where, as, where, as, as Corinne stand in, I'd say yes. Where, where know, do uh, people uh, oh, yeah. order this audio project? See, Phil's not cut out for this job after all. <laughs> <laughs> so to get it, you got to go to Audible, you can go to Amazon, or you can go to our publisher, Penguin Random House's website. To pre-order, or just order, whatever, Meat Eater Campfire Stories Close Calls. Comes out July 20, but secure it now. Again, you can find it on Audible. You can find it on Amazon. You can find it at Penguin Random House website and get it. Meat Eater Campfire Stories Close Calls. Fully available July 20, available for pre-order at any point. All right, Carmen. Um... Do you, do you have any close calls you need to make us aware of for our next project? No, I have not had any what I would consider close calls. But I do sometimes think back on ways that I've done things in the field and, and know now that that was pretty stupid and not 
not very safety-minded, so. You mean uh, in dealing with animals or in dealing um, with just conditions and yeah, landscape? Yeah, in dealing with animals, but yeah, mostly dealing with just getting around on the landscape. Like I think about uh, the first job I had um, where we were using four-wheelers mm-hmm. a lot. Uh, it was in Alberta, Canada, and um, in the Alberta Rockies, so super rugged terrain, and people just kind of blast all over the place on ATVs there. And so it kind of feels like you can go anywhere, but, um, I mean, I was, you know, flipping ATVs, and, and we were doing some really not smart stuff. Just just stretching what an ATV should be doing with more people on it than should be on it, that sort of thing. Um, snowmobiling, too. I learned to snowmobile in the northern Maine woods in winter. Mm-hmm. So uh, I was working with two guys who'd been doing it their whole lives and basically learning on the fly, you know, blasting around at 60 miles an hour and, again, wrecking and flipping snowmobiles and, and all that. So 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 the machinery is more expensive, more dangerous than the animals. Oh, I would say so. Yeah. Yeah, traveling. I guess that, I could picture yeah. that being true. Yeah, my other my other not smart traveling thing was um, hitchhiking between our our field camp and and town. I look back on that. I was like, I think I was nineteen or twenty doing. Because you're going in town to whoop it up, or get groceries. But yeah, <laughs> yeah, going into town on your days off, and we just hitchhike. And huh. um, I remember this one guy pulled over. It was me and 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 a girl I was working with, and he. Just one of those instant creepy vibes. Oh, but you're out. You got your thumb out kind of hitchhiking. Thumb yeah. out, standing on the side of the road. Okay. Yeah. And, and he's probably not thinking, oh, here's a couple of biologists going into town no. to get some groceries. Nope. Older, <laughs> older fellow. He's like, here's some people that want to party. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I've never told my parents this. I don't know if they'll listen, but um, yep. Stopped, pulled over. I started to get into the front seat and there were various... Mm, Things you'd get in a truck stop bathroom, like different colored condoms and lubes just strewn on the floor and in the back seat as my friend was getting in. Soiled or new? Oh, I hope new. I don't, I don't okay. remember that. Still clearly. in the package. Still in the package. Yeah. And then as she was getting in, she she said, she told me, there's a gun on the floor here and there's a pistol in the in this car on the floor. And just that combined with his got, vibe. Guy was... Yeah, ready to go, ready for anything. Ready, yes, ready for. It's like this. This day could go in any number of directions. Yeah, so we. Um, you know, it's Tuesday. <laughs> go yeah. on. Anyway, we did. I I refused to get in, and he tried to convince us, but we waited for the next car. Um, I, I want to role play for a minute. Okay, hold on. Now would be a good time to uh, <clears throat> let Carmen explain what she does. I want to role play real we quick. Get too far. Okay. Can just I just make it? Do you want okay. to use the root words role play following the <laughs> no. description yeah, of the interview? No. Thank you, I'm Carmen. <laughs> I'm Carmen, and she's the trucker. So, yes. Was okay, ready? Uh, uh, I'm not going to get in. I've changed my mind. He says... Just get in. Oh, okay. So, not being suave. No, 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 oh. no, no. He was, he was strange and creepy. Okay, yeah, that's all. I, that, it's yeah. just very quick role play, Cal. Okay, yeah. thank you. Yeah. I, I appreciate keeping it, <laughs> keeping it tight. Thank you. I, yeah, it wasn't what you, I wasn't going to do what you worried was going to happen. Thank you. Okay, okay, fill people in now. Moving on. Okay. So, uh, 
way a million years ago when you came on the show, yeah, you were getting engaged. You were uh, not getting engaged. You were engaging in a long project. I think mm-hmm. way back then. Like a- uh, let's see. The second time I was on, I was I was starting on what is the Washington Predator Prey Project. Yeah. Okay, break that down. Okay, so um, like I said, that project's winding up, but it was a uh, a project between a cooperation between the University of Washington and Washington Department of Fish and Wildlife. Um, basically, in a nutshell, looking at how recolonizing wolves could be affecting a number of other species, deer, elk, of course, and then um, cougars as well. And then the component that I mostly worked on was mesocarnivores, so uh, bobcats and coyotes, um, with sort of the... Explain the word mesocarnivores. Medium-sized. Okay. Medium-sized. What's so, the word for like a... What, what, what's a little teeny one called? Ooh. What would you um, call a weasel? One of the little guys. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. But meso is mid Small carnivores. Smart car- carnivores. Small carnivores. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, all right. Go on. Okay. So bobcats and coyotes. So um, basically just, just looking at the premise uh, that with the return of wolves and with, with other any larger predators that are taking down larger prey, they could be creating, this is kind of the theory behind the study, they could be creating um, either food opportunities for mesocarnivores because they can scavenge the deer carcasses, elk carcasses, uh, etc. And so that could be a benefit to the mesocarnivores, but uh, it could also be what they call a fatal attraction because these mesocarnivores could be attracted to these spots and then they themselves get, get killed by the bigger predator. Oh. Yeah, so basically... Well, that's interesting. Yeah, so... Is that the true definition of fatal attraction? Is that where that comes no, from? If it's a movie, dude. Uh, or, it might just be applied to this to this ecological uh, theory. What was that movie about? That was Glenn Close. Oh, oh. And it, that's why Phil's here. <laughs> Come on, Phil, lay it down. Uh, I don't. What remember. was the Sharon Stone one? That's, that's Basic I, Instinct. Oh, thank you. Yeah, there you go. Yeah, Glenn Close gets very jealous and uh, you know goes off the deep end. Got it. That's the quick so it's summary. Not, it's not about. It's like not like a David Attenborough navigate uh, narrated. Unfortunately, thing about, about not. No. carnivores. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know what's interesting about the creating more food resources? Uh, we have a friend who likes to run his hounds, mm-hmm. um, and he he runs mountain lions mostly, but he also runs bobcats. And he was telling me that in December when the season starts. You don't cut a lot of cat tracks. He says, you, because there's too many, there's still all the deer and elk carcasses from hunting season hmm. on the ground. Interesting, yeah. And he says you kind of, and his theory is you kind of wait. And as those deer and elk carcasses from late November mm-hmm. get mopped up, then you start seeing cats spreading out more. And they're not yeah. just stuck in one place yeah. feeding on some, you know, carcass and gut pile. Yeah, no, that, I mean, that, that makes sense. Doing going to on on various other projects, um, wolf clusters is what we call them. It's basically wolves that have had GPS collars on. They're taking a fix every uh, two to four hours, and so you can then download those those GPS points onto your computer. Run an algorithm that pulls out spots where uh, GPS points have been sort of clumping up within a certain, you know, radius of, 
you know, something like 200 meters within a certain time frame. So basically, the wolves were hanging out in this little spot for a while. And so you can the, go that's there. The, you guys have figured out how to do that automatically. Yeah. Because it's got to be every 15 minutes. It's got to be like an enormous amount of. Oh, no, it's every two, two to four hours. Oh, oh I'm sorry. Every two okay. to four hours. Where, I mean, what you the can... hell am I talking about? Did I, where'd 15 minutes come from? I just made that up. I don't up. know. I think so. Okay. Every but two to can... four hours. Yeah. So every two to four hours, he like makes it, drops a pin. Basically, yeah. I see. Yeah. And you can set that, that fix rate is what that's called too. I mean, you could do, you can, some projects, just depending on what question you're trying to answer, you could have a really, really fine scaled movement path of an animal because it could be getting a fix rate every 15 or 30 minutes or whatever. Okay. But for kill sites, they've, they've done the stats and every two hours is, is what you want really. And so does your, um, does your program or whatever the hell just start, it just starts spitting out waypoints. Yep. Where there's a cluster of activity? Yep. Yeah. So in the morning, um, you just download the latest batch of data. You run. It's just a computer algorithm. It pulls out those um, those clusters, and then you you put them on a map, and you see, oh, okay, they spent time there. They spent time there. They spent time there. And so there's my day. I'm going to go out there and, and investigate these. And it's it, this is, um, yeah, they you know, use this for cougars, and, and it's a common. So how many method. days a week do you get to go do that? Well, when I've been working on projects, where that's been my full-time job for some projects, is going to going to kill sites. Just every day. It's pretty lucky. It, that's one of my Discover favorite that, like, things. I would trade you jobs in a second, man. Oh, um, <laughs> I'm not going to lie. It's. Do you bring a lot of that junk home, or are you probably not supposed to? Um, I got a lot of junk in my house. <laughs> I've 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 definitely um, reined it in a bit, but I've always been like that. I've always been picking up dead shit. And yeah, because it. like it, all that walking around, you're probably finding shed antlers and dead heads. And oh yeah, 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 lots of cool stuff. So what do you wow. when you go to all these kill sites? What are you looking for? What are the data points you're picking up there? Well, again, that sort of just depends on the the um, the question. But usually, if you're going to kill sites, one of the main things you're you're trying to figure out is okay, what happened here? Well, let me back up because one thing is. For for wolves, I know I don't remember what the rate is with cougars, but with wolves, it's about twenty percent of the clusters that you go to have a kill at them. So oh. you might go, you know, to lots of clusters, and they were just taking a nap. I mean, they sleep a ton, so you end up going to a lot of bedding spots, um, and so you might have just spent you know half your day getting there, and it's a bedding spot, but. That's, I got you. But you start to kind of put together a picture, especially if you go in order. You're like, okay, hmm, this this cluster is it's winter and it's up on a sunny, you know, south facing slope up up on the the ridge line. Oh, I bet that's going to be a a bedding area. Sure enough, you go there and and it's a bedding area usually. Then you see a cluster and it's down in some gnarly, thick looking. Uh, you know, hell canyon, hole. a hellhole. And you're like, ooh, that's that one. I'm excited. Oh, really? You, get, you yeah. get a good feeling about it. Oh, yeah. Because a lot of times I think what happens is the, the deer or elk are getting chased and where they get hung up is down in these bottoms. So, for example, I was um, at a really cool kill site this winter. It was in a, a really deep canyon, just, um, you know, creek down in the bottom. And... I could reconstruct what happened just from from tracks in the snow and other sign. And there had been a moose that was feeding on a willow um, and kind of bedding and, and whatever. And then 
you could see the wolves came down this really steep mountainside and and there was a short sort of chase where all tracks came together you could see where the moose had sort of leapt and been up to his belly in the snow heading down and it hits towards the bottom and you know how when you're snowshoeing in the winter and all of a sudden you step too close to a log and you sunk into your hips that's what happened to the moose so there was a blanket of snow from the mountainside to or you know from the ground to this big huge log and it looked like the moose had just stepped in the wrong spot gotten mired and then that's when the when the wolves overtook it and so anyway bloodthirsty killers (laughs) you think the moose knew at that point that the jig was up like ooh, lost a wheel it probably (laughs) yeah (laughs) that's not good yeah do you find uh, do you do you find um do you find where they ever uh like surplus killing events do you ever find that in your searches I've no, I've never seen that. It's not like when, like, when a mountain lion gets into like a sheep pasture and just gets a little carried no, away. No, no, I've never see seen that. that. In the wild. No, no. Mm-hmm. At the bedding sites, don't you also collect? You're collecting fecal matter, right? Yeah. So you can yeah. see what they've been eating oh, yeah. and the percentage of alphas and the percent. Okay. Right. So we catch, see. collect on. Um, yeah. I mean, you can get so much information right. from collecting a scat. You can do diet. You can do genetics. That's a lot of what we've been doing. And the status, the percentage of oh, there low we status go. and high status. You can see who's yeah. eating the meat and who's yeah. eating the fur. Well, and you, and a cool thing about scat is you can see um, from the type of scat. So if I'm I'm arriving at a place where I think you can't – it's not always easy, especially at wolf clusters, to find the kill, especially really? in the summertime. In the summertime. Because the clusters is too big? Um, because they kind of go all over the place. They'll go and eat for a while, and then they'll go sometimes a ways off in bed. What's a ways? I don't know. Maybe, I mean, 200 meters. And if you're oh, okay. in a thick, you I got know, you. broken up terrain, it can be tough. And So, so knowing that there's probably some amount of remains of an animal right. within a 400-yard wide circle... Right, when it's you're just in a lot the of scrounge, hole, yeah, it's a lot of scrounging that's around. A lot of scrounging and crawling and just looking for any sort of sign. But um but when I arrive at, at one of those clusters and I see I don't know what that, I call it a, a carcass early carcass scat. So when they the um when they they eat the organs first mm-hmm. and the the breeder male and female usually get to eat the organs. Um because they're high in nutrition. And that, then when they take a shit, it's really nasty. It's like right? black and runny. Because it's not bound together by hair. Right. It's black and runny. And so, you know, okay, that's, that, there's a, there's a decent chance that that's the breeder male or female. And that's, they just ate the organs. So it's an early carcass scat. So we're getting close. And so then I often will get excited. Like, okay, oh, really? there's a freaking carcass here somewhere. And we just got to find it. Like it runs right through them. It goes well. They, I mean, they're usually there for a while. I don't know how long it long enough takes to, to yeah. yeah. Human babies have similar poops the first week of their lives. Remember mm. that? Yeah, Steve? it's even got a special name. Yeah, I know. It's not even poop. called poop. Meconium. Meconium. Oh, Meconium. Oh yeah. My my pet theory about um, the organ the organ consumption. Yeah. My pet theory is this: is that I understand that there's like a nutritional load, right? But I also like the idea, and I think I maybe invented this. Uh, it's, it's, you can eat it fast and you don't know when you're going to lose it because someone else is going to show up and beat your ass. 
right? I think that's a that good. Makes some I sense. think that's a yeah. good hypothesis. And so you're like, you can just inhale the liver. That's mm-hmm. correct. Yeah. And then so all of a sudden, then all of a sudden, whoever else yes. shows up, here's a grizzly. They don't mm-hmm. get meat drunk from eating that. That's really that's. I haven't read that, and you might be the first one. That's a good hypothesis. You should write that up and send it to. <laughs> oh, you watch watch bears hypothesis. like. There's very few animals that are comfortable on a carcass. Like the amount of energy they're expending, whipping their head around, investigating oh, yeah. <laughs> every sound, yeah. every smell. Yeah. Like it's not like, yeah, that's right. okay, time to relax and eat. Carmen, do you ever show up on the, when, you, when you're on the clusters, how often do you show up and bump them out of there? Well, we try really, really hard not to do that. We don't want to oh. be affecting their behavior, bumping them off a kill. And, and if you, especially if you're doing a kill rate, study you need to be well you always need to be really careful about that but you wouldn't want to accidentally affect their kill rate by following them so closely as they go around the woods that you're bumping them bumping gotcha. them off the carcass. Yeah. so what like when you show up usually how many hours have passed since they've moved on days okay yeah for and and there's for different species and and states i would imagine there's different rules on how quickly you can go in i got you so, so it would never have, be that you'd wake up you would that. never wake up and see that there was a cluster from midnight and then run out there no i see no okay and by design you don't do that right by design it's it's always i mean if we didn't have to worry about affecting their behavior it'd be really nice because very quickly um you know with scavengers and that sort of thing the longer it's been since the um the kill event the harder it gets to really accurately assess what's going on because um, it, kill site analysis is kind of one of those things that um, it's easy until you start learning more and then you realize it's easy except for when it's not because uh, you don't really ever know if they are the ones that killed it. No, that's not true. Sometimes you're, you're really, really confident that they killed it, the, your animal adventures killed it. But there's a lot of scavenging that goes on out there and so there's a lot of just weird stuff that can happen to, to any animal you know, yep. to die. And so it could so, always be a scavenging event. When you, to get to the meso predators, mm-hmm. um, are they often there? Hmm. I'm trying to think if I've ever come up on a kill and seen, I've, I've heard a cougar once. Um, I've seen bears coming up. I don't, I don't think I've ever come up on a kill. I mean, we're usually kind of, you know, we're on a snowmobile or we're crashing through the woods, stuff like that. We're not, we're not trying to sneak in, especially yeah, when it's summertime and, and bears are out. So relate though, relate the, the work though, to how, to how, how do you then roll in the impacts on coyotes and bobcats? Okay. So we, so it's not just, so going to kill sites for, for that question, the, um, Putting up cameras was was one of the main goals. So we get to a kill and and put up a, a trail camera, and um, and leave it there for at least a month, trying to capture different different interactions between uh, apex or large carnivores and mesocarnivores. Are you setting it on video? No, takes too much battery and and okay. memory to do that. But um, do you do like the clusters? Three three yep, shot clusters. Three shot clusters. So we usually have thousands of photos, and that's that's always like a little just opening up a treasure box. Do you have a, software that sorts through all that? Uh, the project is going to use software, but um, I mean, whenever I collect a camera, I certainly go through it because I'm excited to see what's on it. So, and yeah. you get in there and look at all those images. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. 
Yeah, and so the other the other part of that is that we're trapping and collaring. We were trapping and collaring coyotes and bobcats, so that we could, and then the wolves and cougars are also collared in the area, and then um, they can use those different movement patterns to see how they might be avoiding each other on the landscape or not that sort of thing, and then also collecting scats for genetic analysis for some different population demographics and that sort of thing. So. And you you were uh, involved in putting the collars on them? Yeah. Yep. So I was in charge of so, – so my job on the project, I don't work for the state. I don't work – well, I work for UW. There's um, some wonderful graduate students that are heading each section of the research, various research pro- projects that are under the Washington predator-prey umbrella. And you can, you know, look those up online. There's a website. But um, I was hired by UW – to run the field component of the mesocarnivore project. So um, every season, our, our, our main goal was in the winter trapping bobcats and in the summer trapping coyotes. And how are you catching the bobcats? With cage traps. Okay. Yeah. So Which doesn't ca- fly with coyotes, right? No. doesn't Unless they are a very desperate coyote. I think the project, we've got two study areas and and not in my study area, but the other one, um, we were working with some trappers. So if they caught a bobcat that they didn't want to take, they could contact us. We'd go over there, put a collar on it. Got you. Well, they contacted us once with a coyote that had gone to a, into a bobcat. Got into one so of their cage traps. must have been super hungry. And are you that. guys, when you're rigging up those cage traps, are you, do you, are you guys using a, a, like an audio element? Like you put like a call, like a bird bird squawk mechanism or anything like that near it? I have used those before. Um, uh, we didn't use those on this project, though. We were we were using visual like little, te- little teddy bears and... <laughs> Not little teddy bears, but shiny stuff. Basically cat toys. Yeah. I mean, seriously, I've had cameras on on traps and i i like to so i set my trap i cover it with branches get it all tucked in real nice and then just outside the door i'll hang just a little ball of shiny uh you know monofilament no no sorry um what's that called bird tape really shiny Tinsel bird tape type th- stuff. yeah that sort yeah. of thing basically hanging that from monofilament so it can kind of blow in the breeze and hopefully catch the the moonlight or whatever and i have pictures and videos of cats playing with that like a damn house cat before going into the trap and what are you baiting the trap with odor or use any meat all kinds of stuff we use uh lots of just you know lures and and baits that you can get from f&t fur trappers or whatever it's a regular trap and lure Mm -hmm. but you guys haven't done that because you see a lot of guys that use those cage traps will take little stuffed animals but get Mm -hmm. really high quality eyes pull the pull the bad eyes off and put good Mm -hmm. eyes on it and place that in there. there. Yeah, no, I've seen that. Um, and then, in, well, in the back of the trap, I usually then hang some feathers to kind of okay. catch the wind too. So I use a visual in the trap as well. And then whatever smelly stuff, you know, and then... Um, what are you doing to mitigate your own scent? Cats With cats, care. nothing. Yeah. Yeah, they're not, I mean, you can just look at their skull and see they're not, they're not built for super... Super smelling like a coyote is. That's very judgmental. Yeah, that is. <laughs> yeah, but you know what? They got squashed faces. Yeah. So you're the, you're the type who <laughs> reads book title and knows all about it. <laughs> uh, it's just physiology. <laughs> and when you're trapping cats, you setting on sign. Is it pretty important Absol- to set on that sign? That is my yeah. Because we don't where we're trapping. It's not like there's a, a bobcat around every corner, and so you can 
Best case scenario, you see fresh sign, you set a trap, and they're, they're still in the area for the next couple of days and happen, you know, to go by your trap and detect it and go in. But sometimes you, you see sign, you set, and they're not back for two weeks. Mm. They're cycling over in some other area of their, their home range. We find that the bobcats have really big home ranges and made some crazy movements. Um, it's pretty incredible, but yeah. So setting on sign is, is really important. So basically... You just get to go out tracking, and when you see something good, set a huh. trap. Yeah. Man, you get to log a lot of hours out there wandering around. That's yeah. fun. Yeah. Are you by yourself mostly? Um, depends on the project. There's some some work that I've done where I'm mostly alone, um, and others where I'm not. Doing this, we were we were worked in teams. Yeah. And then, um, when you run into people, are people kind of like? curious what you're doing do you bother to explain it to them do you try to act oh, yeah. like you're doing something else no i I mean i yeah no i'm always happy to talk to the public if they come up and have questions or or whatever and people do and um sometimes they share their stories and sometimes they're really out there but a lot of yeah no i definitely talk to whoever and the study you've been working on is there uh do you feel that there was a um meaningful stuff came out of it now that it's winding down like, do you feel that, like, actionable, meaningful, uh, I'm trying to use the word data in my Results? Sentence. No, I was trying to get data. In yeah, there, data's man. great. Yeah, data. 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 I, I, think didn't finish, I didn't finish the sentence. I just said data. You know what I'm talking about, though. Yeah. No, I know Did what you mean. Did you get mean. any good data? I think that this, <laughs> this um, the group of grad students that are, and, and WDFW employees that are working on this study are, I'm really excited to see they're they're still in the analysis phase and and um you know the results are not mine to share but i just knowing these people i'm they're gonna do a great job thinking about the data that they're getting and being really thoughtful and and thorough and and answering important questions and we've got a ton of data from this project so are you doing that sciencey thing right now where um you're not saying what happened because you guys got to go through your little process and everything. I really don't know. I mean, it's, I, it's, you can't really look at, first of all, I haven't been involved heavily in, in all the other facets of the project for the meso carnivore stuff. I mean, we've just been out there busting it and collecting and collecting data. And so without analyzing it, or at least, you know, visualizing that data with graphs and stuff, it's hard to say what kind of trends you might be pulling out. Hmm. Yeah. You got to wait for so the, for the paper to come yep. out. Yeah. Yep. I think Steve was trying to ask you, are you doing one of those government sciencey things where they give you the conclusion first and then they mm. hire you to get the data that fits? <laughs> yeah, I've done all that. Yeah. Oh yeah, that's, that's like, what you show meant, right? us that show us that wolves are made of rainbows. That's pretty <laughs> no, much yeah. whatever they want, that's what they hire you to do. Yeah, no. Like, you ever felt that kind of pressure? No. Wow. Absolutely not. I I've um the integrity of the science that I've worked on, I I think has always been really, mm -hmm. yeah. It's just good scientists just out there trying to answer questions that they're interested in. Do you feel that, um, but do you feel that people are like, uh, they want to demonstrate that, that wolves will bring us these beautiful trophic cascades. Like they want to show that. I mean, we recently <laughs> talked about a paper someone put out that was my goodness. Here's one thing about wolves is they really reduce car deer vehicle right, collisions. Right, right. And in reading the paper, you're like, 
you said, man, here's an interesting thing to do. I should show that it reduces car right. vehicle collisions because that'd be helpful. Yeah. No, it I really smelled like that. To yeah, me. yeah. Yeah. I, I totally get what you're saying and getting it. And I've, you know, seen that in papers and stuff, but my, my experience has been, mm-hmm. I don't know, really solid, good projects. So yeah. I was, uh, very much on the line. I was going in with this assumption when I was reading this paper by this fellow Jonah Keim, who, uh, looked at the advantages, uh, predators get by traveling, um, roads, uh, you know, clean trails, things like that. This is in, in Canada. So there's all sorts of like, uh, oil pipeline roads and, and cut line roads and things like that. And so he put together the study where he looked at just the efficiency of travel in these areas and how that impacts the, um, prey species. And it it was all very good stuff, but you kind of had this feeling that he was coming down to. So the solution is not killing wolves. It's making the country harder to travel. So mm. like putting up impediments on roads and trails that we make for gotcha. to make life easier for us. Yeah. Um, and I was like, yeah, well, yeah. But then at the end, he's like, however, this is not uh, like this golden solution to a complex problem. And he laid out the complexity of the issue and then came down to saying like, and if you're in a scenario where your prey species are so reduced that the predator species population uh, has a distinct advantage, this is not the only thing that you can do. The yeah. Like there will have to be some sort of lethal removal on your predator population. So in the end, it didn't feel like you were reading cancer research sponsored by the tobacco company. Exactly. Yeah. So that's a shout out for lead author Jonah Kime. I hope I'm saying your name right. That was a good paper. Make life insurance part of your financial planning this year. Start shopping now with Policy Genius to find the right policy to protect your family. Getting life insurance today means you'll have peace of mind so that if something were to happen to you, your family can cover expenses while getting back on their feet. With Policy Genius, you can find life insurance policies that start at just $292 per year for $1 million of coverage. Some options offer same-day approval and avoid unnecessary medical exams. They work for you, not the insurance companies. That means they don't have an incentive to recommend one insurer over another so you can trust their guidance. No wonder they have thousands of five-star reviews on Google and Trustpilot. Save time and money and provide your family with a financial safety net using Policy Genius. Head to policygenius.com or click the link in the description to get your free life insurance quotes and see how much you could save. That's policygenius.com. Hey, I'm kind of an afternoon hydrator. Like, you know, I wake up in the morning and drink a bunch of coffee. Then later in the day, I'm like, man, I got to hydrate. And then uh, I'll see some liquid IV and then I'll drink a whole bunch because I like it a lot. It helps me stay hydrated because it motivates me to do it. Now, it doesn't matter if you like hydrate to live or live to hydrate. Liquid IV quenches your thirst faster than water alone. 
It's got three times the electrolytes of the leading sports drinks. And no artificial sweeteners, plus zero sugar in the sugar-free version. However you hydrate, grab your Liquid IV Hydration Multiplier sugar-free in bulk nationwide at Costco. Or get 20% off your first order when you go to liquidiv.com and use our code, MEATEATER, at checkout. That's 20% off your first order when you shop Superior Hydration today using promo code MEATEATER at liquidiv.com. I spend a lot of time outside, and I spend a lot of time hydrating with Liquid IV because, like I said, I love it, and it makes me drink like I know I should. It makes me feel great. Check it out, liquidiv.com. On X Hunt is always striving to help make hunters more successful in the field each season. This hunting season, they will have a bunch of new features to help you on your next hunt. These features include new aerial imagery options like leaf off, recent imagery updated every two weeks with historic look back, and imagery on demand. On top of that, OnX is reinventing the trail camera market by syncing your hunt app with multiple cell camera manufacturers and helping organize and analyze your photos. You can also now view your maps in Dash when driving to your next hunting location. These are just a few of the many updates OnX has for this hunting season. Try OnX Hunt free for seven days or go to onxmaps.com slash hunt and use code MEATEATER for 20% off your new OnX Hunt membership. Ladies and gentlemen, this is the app I use most. I love it. I cannot picture life without it. Use code MEATEATER for 20% off on your new OnX Hunt membership. So, Carmen, uh, two two questions for you. Mm -hmm. Two more questions for you. Um, Talk about catching the coyotes. Like yeah. how you catch them to put a collar on them, and then I then I'm then I, I need to hear what you're doing next. Now that you're okay. done with doing this, yeah. Um, catching coyotes—that's probably my favorite kind of trapping, just because of the the challenge. It's also, in a lot of ways, my least favorite, just because of um, well, it just kind of makes you feel bad <laughs> on a lot of days. It's like you can't wait to get out there and and check your traps, but. Man, I don't know. Things can foothold trapping is just it's kind of um it's a little harsh. It's a little harsh. And so we're we um our foothold trapping for coyotes, it's really the only practical way to catch canids. Mm-hmm. Um, because they are so smart and they're so wary. And um and so it was in that regard really fascinating because you're just having to um work really hard to get to know the animals that are in the area that you're trying to trap and you never really figure it out. They're always, you know, just throwing something new at you. Yeah. Um, and so it's really interesting in that way. Just, I mean, from exactly how you set your trap to where you put your trap to what area of the mountain that you're, you're trapping on. You got to, there's just so many different variables that you're trying to, trying to figure out. And it's so frustrating. What kind of traps do you guys use? Uh, Victor's number three, four coil. And then we use, um, they got like the laminated jaws or like a soft they've got a rubber offset jaw yeah Yeah. so i mean i could i could you know i often got my hand stuck in it for whatever reason just not being careful and stuff and it didn't you know it doesn't feel good that's for sure but it's not like it's breaking skin or and then you do you anchor it with like an earth anchor or do you use a stake um we so we'd we'd use well we used lots of things um 
stakes, but in our area, it's so rocky. The soil is so bad. It's really hard. You see these YouTube videos of guys catching coyotes, and they're out in, you know, cornfields where every single rock has been picked, and the ground is so soft and loamy, and they're just like, punk, 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 you know, punching a trap in two yeah. minutes. We're out there in, you know, 95-degree weather because we're having to trap in the summer because you can't do it in the winter where we are. So you're trapping in the summer, which is a whole another set of um, difficulty because because we are trapping for research and so our our ethical standard for how we're treating these animals is different right we've got this professional yeah, you got to turn it out in healthy condition right and so we're trying to do we're trying to especially on this project I wanted to really raise the bar on our both of our well the capture element so so making it as uh, humane as we could, which is difficult with foothold trapping, and then also the handling part. So when you actually come up to an animal in the trap and then drug it and, and do the handling, um, those can be pretty rodeo-ish. And there's been a lot of kind of just, um, I don't know, cowboyish culture around those handlings traditionally. Not, I mean, that's not across the board my, by any means, but I think that the um, we're getting better at being really thoughtful about not only just getting our animal to live through that experience, but to um, have it be as least stressful and painful f- for them as possible. Yeah. So, so we've been working really hard to raise the bar there. Um, but back to the the different types of anchors, we so we tried stakes way too rocky try use earth acres but the main the main thing we use is um a grapple hook yep. on a long chain which you bury down under the trap uh yeah usually yeah. or sometimes just kind of bury it in the bushes under leaves and stuff behind it but basically what as you're selecting your exact trap site there's a lot of things you got to think about aside from just is this a good spot to catch coyote is there is it a likely spot You've got to think about, is there a drop-off somewhere? Because they could then, you know, drag the, the the grapple and the grapple could get hung up and then they're off off the, you know, cliff dangling from oh, the trap. So yeah. you're thinking about that. You're thinking about shade because it's summertime. Um, you're thinking about human traffic. Is this road too busy? That sort of thing. So there's a lot of safety variables that have to come together. Um, and so most of the time, what what ends up being the, the preferred... Um, staking method is to use a grapple because then they can get off the road, get hung up in some shade, be a little bit away from, from the road if people come by or whatever. Yeah. So. Then you don't have some motorist freaking out or hurting the thing or yeah. calling the cops yeah. or whatever the hell. Exactly. And we're out there super early checking traps. So hopefully before people are there, but, but yeah. And then you work them up, like you tranquilize them, put a right. collar on them. Yeah. 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 Take like biometric data off them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, so, see, I'll just use the word data. You hear that? <laughs> Take biometric data off them. <laughs> so um, we call it body measurements, but oh yeah, I went overboard. You didn't went I? overboard, but that's good. <laughs> that's good. Um, yeah. So you come up on the trap, and um, uh, with the grapple, it's always even more exciting because you sometimes you get to the trap and you see, oh, it's just not there. It doesn't look quite like I left it, and so then you're looking around in the bushes and it can actually be hard to spot the animal because they've usually just they're usually just frozen mm-hmm. with fright and so you're uh and our traps have little transmitters on them so if we have to we can, we oh, can okay. use um 
radio telemetry to find it. But usually if you just sort of follow the sign, you can find the animal pretty quickly. And they're tangled up and they're um, having the worst day of their life probably. <laughs> they are, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And so we we work, again, really hard just even with our body language and how we carry ourselves um, to be as non-threatening as we can be, but also confident. You don't want to – it sounds – kind of out there, but your body language matters in how they're going to perceive you. And so you want to be confident, but calm, you know, no big movements, certainly no talking, that sort of thing. Um, so keeping them as calm as possible. And you just, um, we get uh, um, our drugs pulled up and we use what's called a syringe pull. And so it's basically a syringe on the end of a long pole so that you can, uh, you know, from a little bit of a distance, administer the drug. Got it. Um, and, uh, yeah, wait for them to go to sleep and then remove them from the trap and do a medical check and, you know, get their their uh, vitals recording and start putting the collar on. When you guys get bycatch doing that, like a skunk or whatever, mm-hmm. do you do you have mm-hmm. a way you release it or do you, do you have to drug it as well? It depends. Most bycatch I try to just release. Um, skunks are tricky, yeah. <laughs> but I found with them, again, if you're really slow and calm, we hold up a tarp in front of us and just slowly, calmly, if you can walk up to the skunk. And then at the last second, this is where it gets kind of a rodeo, but you, you, uh, throw the tarp on it and then grab it. And then somebody takes it off and they spray. And if you get any of it on you, Ooh, it's like getting, so when punched. you do, when you do the throw, He's going to, he's going to cut He's going to, yeah, 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 yeah. And so you get, oh man, it, I always say it smells like getting punched in the face when it's that much. (laughs) (laughs) It's just the rest of your day, you've just got a headache and I I stopped smelling it so much after a while, but I know other people could smell it on Gives you a headache. Yeah. It's powerful. Yeah, it's nothing like the sweet, pleasant smell of uh, a uh, roadkill skunk that you just drive no, no. by at 65 miles an hour and you go, oh, a little skunky today. Yeah. yeah. I, got no. two, I got two ounces of it in a jar in my fridge right now, mm-hmm. but it's in a jar in a vac-sealed bag, which is in a vac-sealed bag. It is, is it pure? Pure. Yeah. I pulled it out with a syringe. Oh, yeah. Okay. And so, you know, it's like, it looks like a cartoon skunk spray. It's like bright green. Yeah. Yeah. That's crazy looking. Yeah. Well, it's, yeah, be careful with that. (laughs) Oh, You going to use it as lure? Yeah, I don't know. I'm going to use it as a joke on someone. (laughs) I thought about injecting it into the upholstery of someone's car. That is. But yeah, most like a call lure, you know, I don't know. Uh, There's a cool (laughs) uh, study done on breaking down skunk smell. Like exactly why does it stink? And one of the interesting, like, um, chemical compounds, um, as, as like the sulfur, um, hydrogen bonds break down, they actually release more smell and they're water soluble. So the harder you try to wash something out, Uh the more intense the smell gets. Oh, is that right? And the theory is, is that is to remind whatever came in contact with the skunk that they do not want to come in contact with another skunk. He's like, lest you forget. Exactly. Just get wet. <laughs> yep. Yep. So it's it's a multi-day process for whoever comes in contact. But like eight eight different chemical compounds and uh, two of which like very, very rare on the planet. I, w- I want to get this. When you when you approach it with the tarp, mm-hmm. 
you, you're, you're holding up so, it, so if he takes a shot at you. Yeah, yeah. What's the farthest you've ever had him take a shot at you? Oh, not very far. They don't, I don't think they want to waste that that spray. No, give it and to so, me in like feet. Oh, I don't know. Maybe 10 feet. Okay. Yeah. You but you've get... never been in a situation where you've been able to like try to pin his tail down? Because that's supposed to work, right? They got to lift their tail to spray is what everybody says. All the old old man wisdom I listen yeah. to. I, I mean, have you talked to anybody that's actually done that? No. <laughs> I don't see you being able to get close enough to pin the tail down. And I mean, when we throw the tarp on it, we're trying to, it, it's kind of chaotic because then you can't see it, but you're trying to pin everything down. But it's just, it's just kind of going. It's just going to go. Yeah. yeah. Now in, in old, like in fur trapper lore of old, it would be that if you could pull off a heart shot with a 22. Right. <laughs> he's not going to spray, but everybody knows a brain shot he's going to spray. But now guys use those, like people use those big long poles mm-hmm. and uh, inject new, it. Oh Yeah. Like and just kill drug it. it. Even oh, to try, oh. No, even to try to kill it. Like damage, yeah. like people that are doing like damage control work and stuff, they give it an injection with a big long pole. Yeah. I've, I haven't seen that or done that. Yeah. yeah. It's dicey work. It is. Yeah. You got to handle those guys with care. But. And then when you go home, um, is your husband like, you smell like a skunk? Yeah. I'll say, you got, you got a skunk today, didn't you? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I'm pretty sure I go home smelling like all kinds of stuff because I've been, you know, using lures and everything all day, so... Uh, what's the most you ever walked in one day? Oh, I don't know how far. I don't really keep track of that. Some pretty good tracks. Yeah. Yeah. For work? Yeah. Yeah. I don't know how far, especially doing wolf clusters and, and cougar clusters. You're hiking all over in the mountains. Oh, man, I'm jealous of that job. I like that job. Um, okay, what's your new thing? Okay, so the new thing is... Um, is well, it something we could be helpful with by p- promoting the business? I don't know. I mean, we're... It's... it's. Do I want to help you? I just don't know how. Okay. <laughs> well, I'll <laughs> explain it. I'll explain what it is and then you can see. But it's... um, We're calling it Home Range Wildlife Research. And it's a nonprofit that, uh, uh, that we're starting. And it's um, going to be sort of three different prongs. So... I'm in charge of the research component, so that will be just doing either research that we feel like is important and want to do, um, and we're we're really um, driven to do research that's going to be applicable and is immediately uh, needed. Mm-hmm. So um, not just sort of what's interesting, but um, so that's one component. Then a workshop component for for young biologists, uh, just field skills. Cause we have found over the years, you know, having, um, wildlife techs come, a lot of them are maybe just fresh out of college and, and maybe even grew up in the city and don't have those sort of basic technical skills that they need to a feel confident, B be focused on collecting good, clean data and C aren't going to be rolling four four wheelers and (laughs) and costing projects money. Um, so, uh, some workshops based around that and doing some, you know, hopefully some tracking, uh, workshops, uh, animal track and sign and just various skills that, that people might want before they start heading into the field. And then a community science, um, field, cause we live in a place where we feel like if the community is invested in your research, you're going to have better outcomes, but also we have a lot of, um, you know, 
hardcore recreators in the area. And so if, say, there's somebody going out to um, hike in the wilderness or whatever, and we're, we need a camera out there or something, we can be using community science to, to help Oh, us that kind of community data. science. Yeah, yeah. Oh. Yeah. And where were you guys operating? What's, what's the name of the outfit going to be again? Home Range Wildlife Research, yeah. And you're going to operate out of where you're currently at? Mm-hmm. Yep, Winthrop, Winthrop, Washington. And you'll start local there, and, mm-hmm. and then who knows what will happen. Yeah, I imagine it will out. be local for, for quite a while. We're, we've all been working on that landscape for for a long time, and, and we're invested in it, and we've spent so much time in the field there that um, it feels like that's a really good foundation for, for our research because um, – I think there's a lot of value in having scientists that are good naturalists and that are out there um, and and noticing changes over time on the landscape and um, picking up those patterns of, of what's going on out there. When will you get started? Um, we are we're still in an early phase of figuring out and and um, pulling together the nonprofit, so the just the sort of structure of it. Um, but we're all we're starting to write curriculum and, and write I'm working on a proposal for um, a links and, and wildfire project. Huh. Um, and then we've got a community science project that's going to launch this, this summer looking at um, natural food availability for, for bears coupled with uh, how that, the, whether there's good natural food ability or not a season, how that affects human bear interactions, getting into trash, stuff like that. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. And then you're going to do that project I was telling you about where you go and see if bobcats like to eat on gut piles, and that's why <laughs> you can't find them in early December. Right, right. The importance of hunters to bobcats. Yeah, and we'll test the hypothesis that you got to eat the organs quick. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. That's great. So with this new thing, are you going to have, are you going to like have like a, you'll, you'll be a full-time. Yeah. You'll be a full-time salaried person. Mm-hmm. Yep. That's the plan. There Hopefully we can just pull took, it together. It just took like 10 years. Yeah. And here you are. Yeah. Yep. Arrived, hopefully, almost 40. And <laughs> and you have some uh, grant writing in your background. Yep. Yep. We've so all got that's some. that's helpful. Yeah, for sure. That'll be. Yeah. My, my question when I, when I heard about this is, how comfortable are you asking people for money? Yeah. Comfortable? Uh, no, not me. You don't no. like doing it? No, no, no. But hopefully our board will be comfortable. You're going to have that. a board? Yeah, you legally have to have a board as a nonprofit. Yeah. Yeah. Huh. That's cool, man. Yeah. That's great. Thanks. Full-time job. Yeah. Make your own job. There you go. That is the moral of the story. And that is, I think, what's going to be needing to happen for for wildlife biologists more and more because it's just, it's, the field is really flooded. And so it's hard to get jobs just from a competitive standpoint and also... um, because there's so many people wanting to do that field work, there's, um, well, it's hard to get paid well. They'll do it for nothing. Yeah, exactly. I would. Yeah. Yeah. So. I don't know if I do. I mean, it's just pretty intriguing. Oh, the folks that I worked with on the Grizz study there in Idaho, it was just like, they created their own jobs and then had to recreate their lifestyles in order to do those jobs. Mm. And it's, yeah, it's, it's a passion passion deal for sure it's it's not a it's a tough way to make a living for sure so it's not a meritocracy exactly that's <laughs> what you said at the beginning but it's not at all 
you have to have you have to come from a family with money, don't you? Yeah, basically, to be, or just poor oh, kids. to be able to to be able to. That's yeah, interesting yeah. point. Kids can't do that. Yeah, yeah. It's it's. I think that. it's being talked about more. Not and everyone more that, which is your podcast is rich, are they? Oh, <laughs> so I'm, I'm assuming people. not. Yeah, Definitely it's not, not a meritocracy. But I know it's a lot of people money. who's. But I mean, you know, my brothers included. I know a lot of people <laughs> who are uh, were certainly not rich who slugged it out and pulled it off. Yeah, but yeah. it's like becoming a writer. You got to commit it yourself to spending a, tough, a bunch yeah. of years living below the pot, like living below the <laughs> poverty line, yeah. and not be seducted by a Plan B. I'm sure that's right. So uh, yeah, I think that that's a, a gravy way to do it. I had someone explain to me one time that like to be an Olympic skier. They were saying it's it's in large measure it's a function of your family's finances, because you either can ski six months a year. Or you go live in New Zealand and you ski 12 months a year. And the people that can ski 12 months a year have a leg up on the people that ski yeah. six. And the people that do that are people from wealthy families. That's right. And it's undeniable. But, I mean, I don't want to – like I would hate to say that point and then discredit people – many people that I know personally that slugged it out. And did Tell it. us about your brother. I missed that part. You said something about your brother. Oh, just that they uh, most certainly were not coming from a wealthy background. Oh, and and, out, and yeah did it, you know, starting out doing like Creel surveys for a dollar an hour, whatever. Or Talk, three. Yeah. yeah or and three. then eventually through like sheer will, sheer force of will got there, but it takes forever. Yeah. And so that's, that's kind of what is happening in wildlife for sure. And there are definitely people that slug it out, but um, it does leave a lot of people out and we're, we're missing out yeah. on on attracting the best and the brightest. So do you think you're going to approach this from a project standpoint or you're just going to try to have uh, a, a fund that people can uh, apply for grants to? Um, I, I think we'll do some just general fundraising to start out, especially um, like we need to raise money to, um, you know, just, startup costs, that sort of thing. But then definitely for different projects, be applying for different specific grants. Identify projects. a project, try to uh, rally some folks around it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then you guys can use your expertise to say why this is exactly so like, a yeah. project worth pursuing. Right. So just sort of like- For the do... benefit of all mankind. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Or, and, and the wildlife, yeah. Yep. Yep. I like it. Yeah. Best of luck, man. Thank you. Let's know if we'd be helpful. I don't know okay. what we do. <laughs> if something comes up. All right. Exactly. Okay, we're going to talk about foxes for a minute. Is everybody ready to talk about fox? Yeah. Fox, foxes, fox and I. Okay, give, uh, Kathy, give us, can you give us like a, a kind of your bio, like a quick bio? Uh, sure. I, uh, <laughs> I was one of those who tried to slug it out, I guess. I have my uh, undergraduate degrees from Missoula. And my doctorate in biology from uh, Montana State University here. I was a park ranger and a wildland firefighter for many, many years. Oh, I didn't know you did firefighting. Yeah, a long time. And even after I finished my doctorate, I was on the lines. <laughs> Hard to give it up. Is that and, like, like, like seasonal firefighting? Yes, absolutely. Yeah. And... Uh, I was just living by myself, trying to use my PhD, trying to find one of those just piles of job applications to fill out for getting a university position. I had started at the University of Montana, but it was a uh, 
part-time. It was a contract, you know, like a postdoc. In fact, uh-huh. it might have been called a postdoc, but they called me. It should have been called a postdoc. I guess they called me an assistant professor. Uh, and I was looking for professorships. And then Fox and showed Did you up do graduate and, work in bald eagles? Yeah, I did. My doctorate yeah. was in bald eagles. That's right. What, was, what, what, what about them? Uh, looking at, so I'll throw out this term, evolutionarily significant units, which is the scientific term for species, what we casually call species. But species is right. It's not a dynamic process. Species are constantly changing. They're hybridizing and they're moving, they're becoming, they're on a pathway, they're on an evolutionary pathway. So technically they're, the Endangered Species Act is about, species are defined in that act as evolutionarily significant units, but nobody wanted to call the act anything that had the word evolution in it for obvious reasons, right? people get all riled up. All riled up, yeah. all riled up, even today. And also it sounds complicated. But the the evolutionary significant unit is how species are defined by scientists. So it's looking at the pathways of the bald eagles and is there just one species of bald eagles in North America? And, and no, of course there's not because they mate according to size. So you can fig and you know that a female won't mate with a larger male. I'm looking at Carmen because she knows this, but maybe you know it too. Uh, so I, I've heard that, but I've never understood the significance females of it. from Alaska. So. Uh, a female and smaller in the southwest, like Arizona. So a female from Arizona is not going to be, she doesn't have the opportunity to mate everywhere in North America because those boys up north are going to be larger than her and she will not mate with a larger male. So they are on a separate pathway, of course. The size, so size does make a difference. You guys already knew that, but we've been telling you it doesn't, but it does. And so females absolutely choose their mates based on size. And if the sizes are separating distinctively, then the sp- then they're going oh, to the, speciate. Yeah, there's a point where they cross like a threshold of incompatibility. Correct. And then they will huh. they will eventually. Then eventually so if you took to one from Arizona, if you took a female from I Arizona and put her in southeast DNA. Alaska, she might just, she might never yep. reproduce. Yep, that's right. Just barren. Uh-huh. Just because of the size differences. She's not going to make... Yep, that's right, that's right, that's right. So she doesn't want to... You notice that's true of all the hawks. You, you see hawks all the time here. You're probably, but I didn't, know it was, I didn't know it was a... You didn't haven't noticed the size differences? So it's like falcons. You've noticed that the female is much bigger than the male. And then when you start looking at hawks, like red tails, the female's bigger, but not much bigger. And eagles are a little bit closer. But the more ferocious of a hunter they are as a bird of prey, the greater the differences, size difference between the sexes. We need your hypothesis on that because scientists don't really know the reason for that. And there's a lot of hypotheses, but eagles are a little bit closer. Say that to me again. I want to make sure I understand it. So eagles are a little bit. The more ferocious? Mm -hmm. So what's the most ferocious bird of prey that you can think of? The ones that really go after meat versus just dead stuff on the road. Like a peregrine. Yes, exactly. The falcons, they're just only going to eat meat, live things, fast things, big things. So, Golden eagles, falcons, they have a huge size dimorphism, di meaning two and morph meaning size. So there's two different sizes, one for the males and one for the females. Humans are dimorphic. Males are bigger than females because humans, the males are bigger than females. And because scientists tend to be humans, we look at the world human-centric. And when animals have the opposite so that the females are bigger than the males, we call that reverse dimorphism. Yeah. So bird of prey have a reverse sexual dimorphism. Females are bigger than the males. Huh. In humans, males are bigger than the have females. Have you ever read that uh, Neanderthals didn't have sexual dimorph as much sexual dimorphism as, as we did? That they were like... No, uh, I uh, didn't, but 
I am reading and shocked at how much we are prejudiced against Neanderthals. And, you know, there was a time oh, when I'm we not. just, I, I mean, we thought they were like just, yeah, I mean, just data just came out a week ago showing that all those things we said about them not engaging in art and not having a sense of aesthetics, that's all just crap. No, I joked I to mean, Cal that we're going to someday soon find out that they had laptops. <laughs> Maybe they keep getting so. like they I keep getting it, they keep getting better and better up. every every day. It's like we like, oh you know yeah, it turns I out Neanderthals uh, had bicycles. <laughs> it's it's true. like every day. It's like oh they it's, were into art. Oh they were poets. Yeah, you're right. <laughs> you are right. You but are they right. sat around. They hung out in Europe for six hundred thousand years, man. Like everybody's like. You're oh, they're so dumb right. and they went extinct. <laughs> so, it's like, dude, they had a long run. They had a yeah, long run. And they, exactly. They were so diverse. So prejudice like, against them. Yeah. They all over the place. We're living yeah. off the land in every way imaginable. That's it's, right. Yeah. So Clam diving. Exactly. They have uh, Neanderthals with swimmers here. <laughs> That's how much time they spent <laughs> no, in the water. They're really advanced just because they're extinct doesn't mean, I mean, I'm totally with you. I'm glad you think that because you're right. They, people thought they were just a dumbass caveman because they're Neanderthals and we use it as an insult. Yeah. But it's really, they like European people, but Americans maybe. I know my European graduate students didn't think Neanderthal was an insult, especially if they're from oh, Northern right? Europe. No, they because, had more respect for them. Well, because it, they're named after the Neander Valley. So that's yeah. where the first... And they were scouting. kicking around in the same they ground. Thought, to them, it was like an... It was like, an <laughs> it was indi- like, like their ancestors. Yeah. Yeah, that's so, right. Yeah. I, 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 to get back to the bird thing a little bit, because... Yeah, um, it's cool. I want your hypothesis someday. Well, so I don't have one yet, but I just want to make sure I'm getting it right. Yeah. Um, okay. As you go up... So if you go look at a... a What's in that family that would be like a like a not ferocious? Well, give me a not ferocious. Bald eagles, for an, example. You call bald not eagles ferocious. are the least ferocious ones. They can survive just scavenging. Tech, I mean, just can, hang out at the local. I mean, dump. look at this. Yeah, look at the salmon that they eat. I mean, they're not really fishing like an osprey very much. I mean, they're they're getting the salmon that are sort of slow moving, dead after they've already spawned. They're bright red. They're on the surface, so they're not ferocious hunters. So they have less sexual so, dimorphism. Uh, the, maybe uh, define like ferocious. Because it seems like it's it, it's no no, but define oh. it as like as the way you're using it the because it's kind of coming out like as in the more energy they'll expend to get food. Right. Oh, I don't know about energy, but I mean, they're, if you're they're go taking the most difficult a... target. So right. peregrines and eagles are real hunters. Technically, a bald eagle is a scavenger. They don't even have to physiologically. They're not obligated by their genetics or by their physiology to hunt. They can just. Like you, did you say hang out at the dump? That's right. Yeah. They can hang out at the dump. Or sit next to the stream and eat the dead salmon. That's right. Or and hunt a, and, in the and osprey, osprey nest. is going to catch live fish. Yeah. And then yeah. they wait till the osprey brings it to its nest and then the bald eagle steals it from the osprey nest when it's already dead. That's yeah. what, yeah. You know, Ben Franklin didn't like uh, eagles. Yeah, of, he they're scavengers. was a really good naturalist. He knew. <laughs> I read the letter that he wrote to his uh, daughter. I wrote to the museum there and asked him if they would send me a copy of it because I was tired of just hearing the rumors about it and I wanted to read the whole thing. Like what he actually said about take it out of context. Yeah. yeah, so he was kind of joking, but he was also serious. I mean, he was sort of joking about the turkey, but he he wanted, he did believe and he knew that bald eagles were scavengers. I mean, he knew that... Although it was beautiful, it was not a bird that was really capable of hunting. It wasn't really a bird that, if we wanted to, to use a, a symbol of a really fierce nation of people, it was a good symbol if you were going to like head people across to the West, land that you didn't own but belonged to Native American nations, and you were going to steal their land 
then the bald eagle was a great, great symbol for that. And that's actually what the United States did, right? So bald eagle ended up being good, but they didn't want it to be that. They thought it was going to be like the big fierce hunter, the noble. Yeah, I got you. It's not real noble. Golden um, eagles are, I guess, more noble uh, if you've ever tried to mess with one. I think bald eagles got a lot of their most recent cachet because they were, it was so, for such a long time, it was rare to see one. Uh, from and then the I think that's going to wear off now. Mm-hmm. And I yeah. think that, you know, because... Well, Growing up, you'd be like, oh, my God, an eagle. Uh, Did you know so-and-so saw a bald eagle? And now they're just like, oh, there's 25 of them in that tree you right there. You see know? them every day for the last, what, 10, 20 years? Yeah, I think that it's yeah, like it's cachet. Right. Will, I think it's cachet right. will be diminished by its success. There's a bald yeah. eagle that lives essentially right here, right here at the office. Like it <laughs> jo- goes over. from, uh, we have a little cut hay field here uh, just to the west of us. And there's some power poles right there. And it'll sit on those power poles and then it'll jump across to the north side of the interstate and <laughs> sit right there kill. too. Yeah. It's e- getting eating road roadkill. Kill, I would assume. Yeah. It yeah, keeps so. But that, you know, that speaking of their cachet. So in the 70s, when they got clobbered by DDT, the United States and a lot of nonprofits, they spent so much money. They're so trying to help the bird recuperate. There are so many graduate students in this country that, you know, would just like this huge club we belong to, people who got their doctorates working on bald eagle because it was- Because all the money in it back then. endless a pot of money to work on bald eagles, endless. And the osprey got like nothing and they ended up recovering faster anyway. I mean, the uh, the osprey huh. is just really a well-suited bird for this country. I mean, they're amazing fishermen. I mean, they are just amazing fishermen. They're talented birds and they have really great common sense. I mean, they don't waste their time fighting with a big- a bird that's much bigger than them. If the bald eagle wants the fish, the bald eagle can get the fish. The osprey just goes and gets another fish. I mean, it's easier to just go, they're just that talented. They'll just go get another fish rather than fight over, like you see all the birds fighting at carcasses. But osprey don't hang out at carcasses. They're like the only ones that fish that well, so they just fish. They've done really, really well in this country. And and they don't eat trash or scavenge like the bald eagles. And they have... High sexual dimorphism, or how can, can, is it fair to they say have, high? Yeah, they have a, a degree of sexual dimorphism. That's right. But it eagles uh, still will have. Uh, I think eagles have a little bit more. Even osprey are only eating fish, of course, and not chasing down mammals. So the ones that are chasing down mammals and big mammals, a golden eagle will take a deer. I mean, you've certainly seen them chasing after. I've seen them chasing after deer. They chase me, and of course, I'm not quite as <laughs> all the time. Yeah, they hate me. Um, so they have a lot of sexual dimorphism. But you never notice that the females were always bigger than the males. I've heard that. Yeah. But no, I haven't noticed And it. the first— I think if I was looking at them in a nest, I wouldn't be able to tell you who was who. Yeah. It's probably my problem. But big one is because they don't have know. they don't have the remarkable differences in coloration that throw right. that like most birds when you oh, most birds right. that you know that there's a male and female, it's because they 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 have that's different right. colors. And they're the same size. So yeah. it's good that so, like, they're you're different colors. So you're looking at some English tell. sparrow eating your the crumbs from your scone oh, underneath the table at the cafe or whatever. Yeah, they're everywhere. He's got a big black throat patch, and you're like, that's the male. <laughs> I, but I, but I'm not looking at size, right? Because they're I'm just looking at the coloration. Size, all the little Tweety birds are pretty much. Yeah, like the, the most size. extreme version being like a pheasant, right? Like everybody on the planet can tell you a male pheasant from a female pheasant. Well, by coloration, if, if you're hunting, at least we hope yeah. <laughs> you know the difference. But you know what I'm saying? It's like yeah. it's not it's I don't, color. That's true. I hadn't I'd forgotten that because because I don't spend a lot of time looking at Tweety birds because there's so many hawks where I live and there's not a lot of little birds around very long. 
bluebirds come in, but then the kestrels clean them up. Boom, 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 instantly. Which is hmm. so much fun to watch. Oh, yeah. It Incredible. Is. The kestrels are so amazing, yeah. aren't they? All day. Yeah, yeah. But I don't put out bird feeders or anything to attract birds to come there so that Because you just luring them into their death. Just luring them into their fatal death. Attraction. That's ridiculous. <laughs> <laughs> fatal yeah. attractions. So you know, I, I got an yeah. email the other week uh, talking about uh, big bird seed, like, you know, like big pharma. And how big oh, bird seed the is big it. bird seed lobby? You're the, lobby? the big bird it's seeds like in conjunction with Autobahn to keep uh, the perpetuation of feeding birds out there, even though it's really? it's providing it's this endless death cycle. <laughs> it is. Oh, there's so know many. That, oh, man. there's oh, hawks that I don't even leave Bozeman anymore. You must know that. Even when I was a grad student here, we get a great uh, hawk hawks migration. That no, I'm saying, but they I get a lot of value here. out of. We have a little bird. We have a modest little bird feeder way high up in the air, <sighs> so it's not adding to the bear problem. And whatever, uh, in my children. Get a tremendous amount of. Uh, we get a lot of education opportunities. It's for we, the children. We keep a running list. <laughs> we keep a running for. list that we constantly update of oh what God. we see in our yard, see or hear from our yard. So there's things on the list that we've never seen, but we heard it from the yard. And uh, I'll give up my bird feeder when they pry off my cold dead hands. <laughs> <laughs> Change my mind. So this winter, it's a modest little bird feeder. You look at your modest little bird feeder, and you can tell me, or you can tell Carmen, about the hawks that should be in Florida for the winter, but decided not to go because they're hanging out at your bird feeder. They're not at my bird feeder. Are you sure? Yeah. You're not seeing red tails that didn't migrate. Well, they're on my list, but that's not what they're doing. They're riding the thermals on the hill behind my house. They're supposed to have migrated, though. Well, <laughs> I'll keep my eyes. I can't tell you that they're there in the winter. I'm I just sure, know they're on my sure. list. I'm just curious. If the list is going to get listen, more intricate, listen. which will be fun. You want to set up a science study? I got a science study for you. <laughs> I'll pull my bird feeder down, and you tell me that that caused birds to leave. Yeah, it's just like like it's a lot of value. Very modest little high up bird feeder. Um, I think there's a lot of value for the kids. Just adds more have, columns to the list. It'll be I don't great. have a problem with people feeding birds. But what's funny is that everybody used to feed birds a long time ago and put a little food out for foxes and things, too. It suddenly became like we're not supposed to be feeding animals and the birds are the last ones, right? I mean, everybody, like a fed bear is a dead bear. And, oh, yeah. Yeah, they just say that mostly because it rhymes, but I think maybe they also think you shouldn't be feeding bears. There's a limit to that, though. I mean, obviously, if you live in the middle of nowhere and there's not any other houses around you, what different, I mean, for 100 miles or bears aren't going to go more than 25, does it really matter if you let bears eat food on your property? Probably not. But if you're in Yellowstone National Park at a campground, you don't want bears coming around where there's food. So you can't really be attracting bears at a campground. Because it's just going to lead them to trouble. Yeah, but it depends yeah. on, it's a very individual thing. But you talk to your grandma and I bet that generation, they used to feed squirrels and stuff like that and chipmunks. And I think in England, you're not even supposed to feed birds anymore. I'm pretty sure about that. I think hmm. I read that in Helen McDonald's new book, Vesper Flights. And so, yeah, they're coming for your bird feeder. They are coming for it. I, I Cold agree. Hands. I agree <laughs> that uh, until they finish reading my thoughts. I don't know if you heard, but it's modest. Again. It's a I, modest bird feeder. Yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> it was way up high. <laughs> feeding animals is not uh, in vogue for sure, right. but it seems like the stuff that makes the paper are the folks that have gone that are making up for a lot of their neighbors not feeding, right? <laughs> like, like some lady in Florida was getting like truckloads of Costco chickens. Oh my God. To feed no, alligators in her back, <laughs> backyard and stuff. And, and yeah, That's barrels hysterical. of feed 
Uh, uh, you know what we Peter recently Korn. had on our website? I don't know if you've seen it. Um, it's really something. There's a whitetail fawn uh-huh. swimming. He's got himself in a lake somehow, and there's a seawall. So it's like the fawn's out, and you can't get up on the beach because there's a seawall. And so he's swimming parallel to the seawall, and a bald eagle comes down. And very, like, very deliberately, like, it's done. It, it knew what it was doing. It comes down and lands on its head and drowns that thing. I mean, it knew. It wasn't sitting there and it happened to drown. It came down and drowned that fall. And then drug it up on the beach and ate it. That's interesting. Yeah, and it was really interesting. And, and definitely not saying, like, oh, that's very normal. But it was very deliberate in... It kind of like it knew that it was drowning something. Yeah. yeah. And I knew you were going to say it sat on its head. So I do think it's pretty expected for a ball because they're large birds and they throw their weight around. Think about, again, think about a peregrine falcon. They're relatively small compared to a bald eagle and they don't throw their weight around. They have great eyesight. They're talented. They're fast. Prairie falcon, nothing's faster than that. But the throwing the weight around thing fits perfectly with your fierceness hypothesis, they're not right? Fierce. They're just they're slow. Their eyesight isn't as good as a falcon. Oh no, sorry, peregrine so the, falcons. Yeah, are, peregrine falcons are fierce. Like they that great, added mass when they do the the steep or the stoop, you know, where they drop out of the sky on their victim. That's gotta be a tremendous well, advantage. Think about it like hunting. So you hunt. If are you gonna use are you gonna go for knockdown power? If you, let's say you've got a two seventy. Are you going to go for knockdown power and put like 180 grain weight in or are you going to go, I'm going to get something, maybe it's not legal to buy it, but you're going to load your own and you know that you're a straight shooter and you know that you're a great shot. You know that it's going to be a long shot. So load down to like 120 or grain weight so it doesn't kick the hell out of you when you shoot. That's what I mean by mass. But don't you think Bald the eagles advantage? using the weight like somebody putting in 180 grain weight in a 270 because they need knockdown power because they're not going to make a good shot. They don't have finesse. That's the word. Thank you. That's the word I needed. You hearing this, Cal? It's finesse. I am, but <laughs> that you. doesn't the word. fit with like the physics of something dropping out of the sky super fast. You don't. Doesn't like, the heavier if, thing. No, if you is better. No, no. no. So a, a red tail just picked up a skunk on my property the other day, and I wasn't real thrilled about it. And she dropped. She did come back and get it. In case you're a red tail fan, but she dropped it right, and it was a baby. It was just a few weeks old. Oh, it picked up small. a live skunk. Yeah, she killed it though. But I, I picked up the carcass from the ground because she dropped it on this little trail, and I I thought that I was going to bring it over by the den so the mom could see. I, I wondered how they would react to the baby, the dead baby skunk. But anyway, I saw where the red tail. You wanted to know how the mom skunk. I wondered if she would recognize that that was hers or if there would be any kind of reaction. But the red tail came and snatched it back from me before I got to do anything. Oh. But anyway, the skunk, it was dead, right? She had dropped it. She had managed to get her claws right through its head. I mean, that's talent. She doesn't, you don't need any weight if you've got that much finesse. It's dead like that second. If she had tried to grab it from its mass, it wouldn't have been dead. Maybe having extra weight would have helped. But red tails are really good hunters. I mean, you see them pick up snakes. They're really good. Yeah, that's a good point. That can't be easy. So she, red tails have finesse, so it doesn't matter how much weight they have. A bald eagle that doesn't have finesse, because they're used to killing things that are roadkill, uses their bulk, their mass. They're the 180 grain weights in your 270, basically, just using their bulk. I know you guys don't go for knockdown power, because that's not what you advertise, probably. Oh, I, I like things that thump. Yeah, I shoot a big... Uh, <laughs> yeah, I shoot I shoot a... What would be regarded as a heavy rifle? Yeah, yeah. depends. Yeah, on the qu- but the, it doesn't. Query. 
kit. Yeah, I used to load my own. And so I would always load down, 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 lower than what I could buy in the market because I don't want to, if it hurts me more than it hurts what's dead. Yeah, you don't want to loosen your molars and stuff. It's <laughs> yeah. a bad thing. Yeah, why hunt if you're like, arm's going to fall off. Okay, I want to keep, socket. Cal, can you take it up, can you take it up offline arguing about the birds? Yeah. Because I want to keep moving. What am I supposed to do? Well, I'm saying if you got, if you want to argue about birds more, you'll have to call Kathy up later. Oh yeah, no problem. I know where she lives. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm. Am I arguing? I don't. No, mean to this is, I don't. I'm teasing. I'm arguing. Yeah. All right. So uh, that was a big digression. Valuable. Sorry. No, it's my fault. I not my fault. I'm glad I did it. Okay. Uh, it was prompted by me. But I want to keep yeah. moving forward. Okay. That was just Kathy's bio, by the way. That was Kathy's bio. <laughs> so now you know who I am. That was Kathy's bio. Yeah. Um. Okay. Walk me through in whatever way it makes sense. Walk me through how we got from that. Here you are studying bald eagles mm-hmm. to you got a brand new book about, about not foxes, but a fox Yeah, based on a fox. It's really important to distinguish between foxes and a fox. So scientists do research, gather information so that you can enlighten us, staring at Carmen again, <laughs> about foxes, just like sociologists are studying about humans. But when you write a book, a novel, you're not trying to show us about, you're, you've got a protagonist who's one human. My book isn't about foxes in general. It's not encyclopedic information about a particular species. It's about one particular fox. But it is important for us to start realizing that we shouldn't just generalize. We have tended to generalize animals and put them all in one big clump. It I mean, we, we just as humans, humans okay. yeah, it keeps us from empathizing with them. I think you'll feel the same when you think about other pe- groups of people. But when we when we put people or animals in a big group, when we generalize, it keeps us from empathizing. And when we empathize, then we can really understand and accept and respect them and understand that they're a little bit closer to humans than we thought that they were. So my book is about an individual fox, and it is important to understand the difference between the generic generic fox. For I mean, there's lots of things that are true about foxes that I believe are true. I've read them in, in, uh, in my textbook that I use in my classes. And so foxes do have an instinct to evade, for example, something flying overhead like a golden eagle. But my particular fox didn't. I mean, I would watch him run down the hill and I've got a bald eagle nest on the cliff there. And he just would just be bouncing around. And I mean, he just, you know, animals do have individual personalities. Like that was a blind spot for that fox. Yeah, exactly. Um, But that's not, I'm not trying to change how you feel about all foxes. I don't want you to think that, oh, it's not true that foxes evade. It's what's true of the generic fox. It's important that we have, when we get in scientific information, we're talking about, you know, the ones under the high part of the bell curve. And we assume that people know that there's outliers. But mm. some people forget that they're outliers and they think that everything is the same. We know that humans have outliers too, though. I'm in a room with like four outliers or so. So you know humans are outliers, but we forget that's true of other species as well. Yeah. Outliers. No, I understand what you're saying with humans. Like humans are um, kind of generally monogamous. They generally reproduce, but that's certainly, you know, 
Not I, the case. I think humans, scientifically speaking, are harem, harem breeding species. Isn't that right? I mean, they're harem breeders. But Mormons are monogamous, maybe, I guess. But not humans in general. We're harem breeders. Really? Sci- I mean, biologically speaking. Biologically harem yeah, breeders? Yeah, but I know what you mean. You mean our Like the culture. rest is like a sociological, uh, like a sociological sure. overlay, a cultural yeah. overlay. Yeah, you should read E.O. Wilson's Sociobiology. <laughs> giving you another See, book. I, but, yeah, <laughs> but uh, I don't know, man. I was reading this thing about how... Um, that doesn't apply in your house. No, it'd be like that. <laughs> that human human females. Um, there's no outward visual. There's no outward visual to tell someone that they're in heat. Okay, if you just if you want to talk like like purely like mammalian terms, there's no outward visual, and it's not like a seasonal thing. It's not like once a year. Right, females ovulate. Yeah, like yeah. So viable, like it would be like a, a human female would be sexually viable twelve times a year, not one time a year, like some wild animals in, in, at higher latitudes. And then um, the temperature changes. You know that, but it's not an outward. The, I'm just telling. You, I'm not telling you my the thing. I'm just saying. The viscosity of the vaginal fluids. Can you say that on your radio show? Yeah, sure. That's but I'm talking about changes. outward visual displays right, as opposed to like a baboon. Yeah, but a baboon. Yeah, but on right. baboons, for instance, there's like an outward visual display. Okay. So someone was say, like, I just read this thing one time explaining monogamy mm-hmm. and and staying at home. Okay, and it would be that you couldn't. Like a bull elk. Let's take a bull elk. Okay. He knows as long as he shows up in September around the cows, he's not missing anything. If he goes off into his own zone in November and stays out there and has no interaction with cows at all. Totally antisocial. Hides out, antisocial. He's not like, he knows he's not missing out on breeding and opportunities. And they do hang. Right. You're right. But mm-hmm. with a human, it wound up being that that you could be missing out. And in your absence, there could be things going on that you don't want to know about. So that compelled people to spend their entire time together. Hmm. Wouldn't that just compel one guy to like Genghis Khan to have more females around him? When I say that we're harem breeders, I don't mean in the last two or 300 or 400 years. I mean, humans have been on the planet for hundreds of thousands of years. So I mean the history of Homo sapiens. Yeah, And I'm not even telling you, I'm just telling you like a thing I read. Yeah, a thing I read. So never mind. What was I saying? <laughs> there's a, there's all sorts of fun stuff we could talk. Oh, about. you're talking about great. outliers. Yeah. And I was trying to say I was outliers, trying to make like yeah. some general things about humans. Like there's, oh, yeah. sorry. So, yeah, forget right. that. Sorry. Forget we that. There are outliers. You, there, you're, there are outliers in humans. There yes. We'll move on. Yes. Yes. You're right. And sorry about that. So we start talking about monogamy, and you were just because you picked a weird thing as a, uh, to be an outlier, and actually, but, I should have picked something different. But. Like we generally height. like marshmallows. Yeah, we generally <laughs> like marshmallows. People like sweet things. And then there's some people that don't like sweet stuff. That's Good safe. job. That's safer than monogamy. Good job. People like a certain kinds of food. And then every once in a while you run into people that don't like that kind of food. Or people are basically all the same sizes. And then there's like some people born that are like seven or eight feet tall. Some people that are very short. So are you holding Those out? I, I want to I help out here. Are you holding out the the fox and fox and I could be like a wild outlier? Oh, he's yeah, he's an outlier, not super wild outliers. Okay. I mean, you know, there's research that was done in Russia over a fifty year period and shows that um, Dr. Balyev's research and so fo- it's not a huge outlier. I, I doubt he's even one in a million. It's just that I, in my experience, in my very short life, 
and I've always had foxes on my property for, for a long time anyway, I've not been able to get this to work with a relationship like that with another fox. But I haven't seen a million foxes, you know, a couple I dozen. Understand. So maybe he's one in a thousand or something like that. But he's not that that kind of personality isn't yeah, that rare. He could be because, one in 24. Yeah, he could be one in 24 because the research shows that foxes are relatively easy to domesticate, almost as easy as dogs. So Dr. Balyev was able to do it with about 50 generations. That's pretty quick. On X Hunt is always striving to help make hunters more successful in the field each season. This hunting season, they will have a bunch of new features to help you on your next hunt. These features include new aerial imagery options like leaf off, recent imagery updated every two weeks with historic look back, and imagery on demand. On top of that, OnX is reinventing the trail camera market by syncing your hunt app with multiple cell camera manufacturers and helping organize and analyze your photos. You can also now view your maps in Dash when driving to your next hunting location. These are just a few of the many updates OnX has for this hunting season. Try OnX Hunt free for seven days or go to onxmaps.com slash hunt and use code MEATEATER for 20% off your new OnX Hunt membership. Ladies and gentlemen, this is the app I use most. I love it. I cannot picture life without it. Use code MEATEATER for 20% off on your new OnX Hunt membership. Did you know Fast Growing Trees is the biggest online nursery in the U.S. with more than 10,000 different kinds of plants? You can grow lemon, avocado, olive, or fig trees inside your home on top of the wide variety of houseplants available. Fast Growing Trees makes it easy to order online and your plants are shipped directly to your door in one or two days. Along with their 30-day Alive and Thrive guarantee, they offer free plant consultation forever. I've been shopping around on fast growing trees and I am fixing to get me a couple spruce trees for my yard. Right now, they have some of the best deals online, like up to half off on select plants. Our listeners get an additional 15% off their first purchase when using code MEATEATER at checkout. Visit fastgrowingtrees.com and use code MEATEATER at checkout for an additional 15% off fastgrowingtrees.com code meat eater offer is valid for a limited time minimum purchase may be required terms and conditions apply decked drawer systems their products let you store and transport anything and everything to and from whatever you are doing i have been using a deck system for years i would not want to drive a truck without a deck system in it you can clear the clutter right out of your cab. No more tripping over duct tape, jumper cables, toe straps. You put all that stuff in the deck system. Get rid of the random tubs and bins. You get out more, get more done, spend your time doing what you want to do when you have all your stuff organized and ready to go where it should be, all tucked away in your deck system. I've always loved decked as is, but it's even better now because they just redesigned their drawer system and storage cases from the ground up. They got the Deco case line. These cases are as tough, if not tougher, than Pelican case or Go boxes. Totally waterproof and dustproof. You can literally run over them in your truck and they will be fine. High quality latches and handles make them really easy to use. They look great. They are made in the USA. 
to check it out, go to decked.com slash meat eater. Get yourself free shipping. Okay, lay out the fox. Lay out the scenario. So the scenario is this little fox starts coming around my house like all the time at the same time. And I had... What time did he come? Right. He was it was 4.15. He was watching the sun. He, he was uh, He's really sensitive to the sun. He kind of gerrymanders his whole life routines around. Like he doesn't like the sun in his eyes, but he does like the sun on his body when he's sunbathing. And um, he doesn't like to walk into it. So he does things according to the sun. When First, you say little, sorry, when you say little, was, was it a, a young No, but fox? he was certainly a runt. I'm, a I'm guessing, fox. I was guessing about six pounds. And, um, you, you think he was a, lit, a runt of a litter? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the fact that he couldn't talk. And then when you see, when you go and see uh, like the certain rock that he used to stand on all the time, and I have photos of him of all four feet on that rock. And then you go and look at how small that rock is and you just, oh yeah. my God, yeah, he was a real small fox. Foxes are smaller in the in the Rockies than they're going to be in England and probably even in a more moderate climate than in, in Washington State or Oregon. They're, they're small in the Rockies. Everything's smaller here because the growing seasons and they can't – is short and they can't eat as much. So he was a small fox for sure um, and he planned his life around the sun pretty much. But I think that he had decided he wanted – me in his life. He wanted a person. There wasn't any other choice around for him besides me. And I didn't really want to have anything to do with him, but he wore me down. And eventually, I really believe he became what I would call my best friend. We were together every day, every day for years. I mean, just I read to him and we walked around together and then we played games together. But it took a while to get to that Did point. you feed him? No, but I do keep... Um, egg yolks outside, not clo- very close to my house, but when I was just eating egg whites in the days before, you could just buy the whites and I would separate them out so I wasn't eating egg yolks every day. I would put egg yolks out by a tree three, about 300 meters from my house. And so he would eat those once in a while, but not many. He would come by and eat like one. Mm-hmm. The magpies ate most of them. And I don't think that he ever associated those egg yolks with me. Um, so no, then I don't think I was pretty careful not to put things in my mouth in front of him, even if I was just drinking tea while I was sitting on the steps with him. I wouldn't even drink it while he was watching. I didn't want him to see me put stuff in my mouth. So there I didn't was want a him day to associate food with me. But there was a day, like a, a, a day when you first took oh, note. Like absolutely. what was the day you first registered his presence? So the first time that I realized he was odd and something was going to happen when he wasn't just like some errant animal. I mean, there's always foxes and badgers and skunks around and deer. That day happened when I was hanging out outside and I have, I always have scabby knees. So I had the scabby knee and this huge housefly was playing with my scab, sucking all this blood and playing with the blood. And I was like blowing it to try to get it off my knee. Why did you have scabby knees? Falling off the cliffs, climbing up the cliffs. Oh, I thought maybe he had like bones. psoriasis or something. No, no, no. Climbing up. Well, that was from a fall when I was jogging or I shouldn't have been jogging by myself and took mm-hmm. a little bit of a roll. But climbing the cliffs or jogging on trails that I shouldn't be jogging on. So I was playing with that fly. And then I just kept playing. The fly wouldn't give up. So he would just get off my knee when I would blow really hard. And then he would take a few reconnaissance laps and then boom, right back on my scab again. Start pulling up the blood again. This nasty little arms, so to speak. They don't really have arms. I know you know that. And uh, I just got totally obsessed with this fly and forgot about everything else. And I was just staring at this house fly. Then I looked up 
and there was a fox like two like arms length away huh. from me. It was him, and he didn't even know I was there. He was like staring at that fly on my knee. He was just obsessed with that fly, and I was obsessed with the fly. And at that point, I didn't know what to do because he was so close. So I just said, fox. And then finally, he looked up at me, and when he looked up at me, he turned his nose down so that, you know, the snout will be in the way if you're trying to look eye to eye. He turned down, and then we were totally eye to eye. The width of a six-pound animal, his eyes are just about the same width as ours are. Another reason I don't think it's one in a million for a fox and a human. To, I mean, their eyes, you know, I have a skunk that's almost the same size hanging around all the time, almost the same size as, a, as that fox. But there are, there's no way you'd ever look eye to eye. I mean, you can barely even see the eyes on a skunk. Sure. They're so small. And their head's so small and, and their eyes are so close together. So a fox, when I'm sitting and he's standing, uh, standing on all fours, his eyes are the same height as mine and the same width as mine. So we were just eye to eye for just the longest time. And that moment, that was the moment that I knew <laughs> there was no going back, really. I mean, I tried, but there was not when you're that close. I mean, he could have reached out and swatted me. I could have, you know, reached, grabbed his little neck and strangled him. But we, we were just that close, just staring at each other. And then I locked him in. He locked me in. I think he knew he had me and I had him at that point. I started taking stuff out of my pockets, tapping them on the wood steps like geodes and feathers, Every, mostly all natural things. I had some brass because I keep I, – I don't just let my brass hang out. So I had some brass in my pocket. I took that out too, told him I didn't use it to shoot the – Deer that's hanging on the wall. The, oh, brass, you know? like ammunition brass. Yeah, brass and ammo. I, I had that, so I took that out and tapped it. But, you know, brass is pretty if you roll it in the sun, so I did that. He liked that, and he liked the rocks. He really liked the feathers that were in my pockets. And then I just moved away and let him How did he show stuff. you that he liked it? These things. Well, he's not. He was really curious about them. I eventually moved away a couple of meters and just let him nose everything that was there, and he just. I kept him coming back for days, just putting my little trinkets out in front of him and letting him show his interest. Then I worried that, well, it was getting boring for me, and I he had a very short attention span, so he would look for a little while, and then he'd put his head up. One of those types mouse. of friends. <laughs> like Can't entertain months, themselves. Yes, yeah, yeah. so I started reading to him after that, and then he was really good about that. I, you liked it? Absolutely. He stayed. I mean, I... I timed him quite a lot, and I he averaged 18 minutes so that he didn't like it a lot. I mean, he wouldn't sit for a very long period of time. 18 minutes is pretty long for – and that's about as long as a person can sit. Okay. Explain – like I understand reading to it, but explain that – Just the, so that I was yeah, making noise. Yeah, but what is the fox's response to it? So the reason It's like basking in the noise? The, it's noise. I mean, the reason I was reading is because I just wasn't used to talking about just myself telling stories, and that's boring and that's hard to do. So I got something that was easy to read. And then you talk for a certain amount of time and look, hold up the pictures so he knows you're trying to communicate, and then you stop, and then you look at him count to 15 to yourself so that he realizes that you are trying to communicate. If you just make noise, he thinks you're just ignoring him. That You know, it's just a person who's making noise. I mean, you you have to do it in that pattern as if you're trying to communicate. And I kept up that pattern and he got used to that pattern. So he knew I was trying to communicate with him. And he had every reason to want me hanging around him because... Because what? 
have hands and big bad tools, and he knew I hated feral cats. I mean, he watched me chase them away. He didn't know about the bad words I was saying to those cats, but he knew I hated feral cats, and he hated feral cats. And there was protection there. Or reduce, the, reduce predator load, reduce yeah, competition. Yeah, he got to hang out in the sunshine in the middle of the day because I was there. Normally, Fox wouldn't be able to just, you know, not with dogs and feral cats around and eagles. So he got a huge advantage from being my friend. Huh. Huge. What is he, okay, but what is he eating all this time? Oh, he was a great hunter. So he's eating lots and lots and lots of voles, mostly voles. That's... I think that's chapter three of the book is called Vol Forest, and it explains how I accidentally got a huge uh, forest filled with voles on my property. I didn't mean to, but I was just, to make a long story short, I just wasn't paying attention <laughs> to my property. And I had this massive, massive amount of voles. I mean, they run over my feet while I was walking. I mean, one of them gave birth on my boot while I, I'm not kidding. While I was, you mean just because, many, just because the, gra- the grass load? And, there and- was so m- it ended up just growing too high with the weeds, those kind of woody things. And then it lays down and creates that kind of like that sort of buffer between the ground and the decaying vegetation. Animals that hunt voles from the air aren't going to go in through woody things that are thorny. And animals that take, skunks take voles, foxes take voles, badgers, animals that come in from the side, especially animals that pounce like a fox, they can't get in either. So the voles just start proliferating and proliferating and proliferating until there's this huge amount of them. I mean, they're, they were just everywhere. So that really attracted him. But he was a good hunter anyway, even after I figured out how to kind of limit the voles a little bit. He was a terrific hunter. There were days when he had five voles piled up on my front doorsteps. He would wait. He would hunt. Leave he would one pile them up by your doorstep. Yeah, I think thought that he was giving them to me, <laughs> but he wasn't. But I thought he was. How Was it just a safe, you feel it was a safe place to put them? It was just because he figured out that the only place the magpies wouldn't steal them. Magpies are really aggressive and they'll come to my steps, but they won't come right to the door. That's like the limit for magpies. So he would put them right up the door so that the magpies wouldn't steal them. And he would keep hunting until he had so met enough to fill his whole mouth. Then he would gather them all up and run them up the hill to where the kits were because he was helping feed them. But if he had to just run up and down, up and down every time he killed one, it wouldn't be very efficient. So he liked to pile his dead things up and then grab them and then bring them up the hill. So he wasn't giving them to me. He was just he was just leaving them there because magpies wouldn't eat anything on my doorstep. You knew that, but I didn't, yeah. You <laughs> so, mentioned... Um, shows how vain I was. <laughs> Present from a fox. You mentioned uh, how short-lived they are. Yeah. Yeah, I, I I was a little bit. If, I think if you'd, uh, I can't remember what you said, but it's like it's like a few years, right? Yeah, like about a guess. I don't know. Years, I would yeah. I would have thrown out seven or eight years. I don't know why. Probably in a zoo, but their wild animals don't live very long. Yeah, I think that's probably one reason why their personalities might be a little bit different than human personalities. So you think back to what your life was like when you were a twenty year old. You were talking about crazy things that you've done, but, and how you think about those near-death experiences. But you think about those near-death experiences differently based on what decade you are in your life. But they don't have like decades of, of their life. They, it's short-lived animals. But for us humans, a 20-year-old human has a little bit different person. I mean, you don't change the person's genetics. It's the exact same person. But your personality changes when you're 20 versus when you're 80, probably. Mm-hmm. Your idea about what a near-death experience is. Even your idea about the passage of time. Exactly, exactly, exactly. And uh, I, I read somewhere where someone was, was trying to capture um, 
when we hear that of that whatever a fly or whatever some aquatic insect has a day or two days right once it emerges uh-huh and then, and yeah and someone was describing though i can't remember who was talking about this but they're talking about when you go to swat a fly right so in your mind you're like it's fast like what right <laughs> but in the fly's oh mind it's God. like oh, oh there's this um yeah, there's this thing that's that's coming that I'll eventually That's right. That I'll eventually no, need to take point. into consideration and avoid. <laughs> you know. It's, like it's just like it's trip like who you know, who really knows? But like it's it's like a it's meteor com- coming yeah, it's down, comprehension you know, of time is thousands of light years away. There's yeah. a meteor up there, it's gonna hit the earth. Yeah, that's right. That's you can really look at trees, you know, you look at trees that are hundreds of years old, like is it you know, not that it's regarding time, but just whatever the experience is, isn't, you know, we're yeah. sort of built in. I, I think that we're born and we pretty quickly get a grasp of kind of what a year is. We quickly get a grasp of when people die and we start to measure because we have a, like, there's a, a fair sense. Like if you're live right now, you know, you're going to be around 80. And you start clock ticking that stuff off, man. I know. And then you realize that it's it's unavoidable. And there comes this awareness of things are go- things going by, time and going by. And you act differently. And, and you're you burning a fuse. That's right. That's and right. I don't know what a, you know, maybe you know now better, but I don't know what a fox, I don't know if a fox is aware that it's it's ticking. I don't, but it seems like it would be innate. I think it's one of the reasons why humans have often set themselves apart from other animals and always forget even your even your students even your undergraduate students in the middle of a biology class forget that humans are animals there's only six kingdoms of life and there's an animal kingdom and we're in it there's not a separate kingdom for humans mm-hmm. so we are animals but people forget that but one way that we have been different from most of the animals that are around in modern america is that we're so much longer lived. And that's be- I mean, that's even more drastic because maybe 100 or 200 years ago, we lived maybe 60 years. And now it's 80, but maybe it's going to be even longer than that. But the lifespan of the animals hasn't changed. So we are separating ourselves a little bit in terms of our longevity. Bears can live 40, 45 years, grizzly bears. Large animals can, but we're wiping out the larger animals because they threaten us. So there aren't a lot of large animals around. But, you know, bison are large animals and they probably don't live more than 16 years. So we do live a lot longer, and if the length that you live changes your personality, then it would give you a reason to believe that, yeah, humans, we have a little bit different personality than foxes. It doesn't mean that other animals don't have a personality, and I think that – I don't believe that humans are the only animals that have certain personality traits. I think that anthropomorphism is just uh, – been mischaracterized and is based on assumptions that just don't make any sense anymore. I want to talk about, uh, you got to define it, but I want to talk about anthropomorphism. But first I want to talk, uh, and maybe you answered it. Uh, what, what's the fox's lifespan? Just a few years. Yeah. So you get into this routine with this thing and it's like, you know that it's, no, it's won't last. That's right. And I, and I thought that was really stupid. I remember I was jogging and, um, thinking to myself, this is really, really dumb. Why am I spending all this? I was spending a lot of time. I mean, my whole life was pretty much geared around. You have to be home at 4.15. Um, That's just insane. An animal that's just going to be gone in the blink of an eye. But, you know, in Paradise Valley, there's all those rainbows out there and double rainbows are really common. And I was jogging on this trail and suddenly this rainbow came up and then it doubled (laughs) 
And you can see end to end. You can still see end to end from my house, but I could see end to end from where I was jogging because it's so open country out there. And then I realized that a rainbow, I mean, how long does that last? And I, I stopped to watch it. I mean, I didn't just like, oh, it's, I'm not going to waste my time with a rainbow because it's, it's going to be because it's short lived. Yeah. And I just, and that, that made up my mind. I thought that's just so stupid to worry about how long something lives when a rainbow doesn't. And I'm not the only one. When you're up in the mountains and you look down, you can see car. I mean, they just stop. People that are like going 90 miles an hour to get to the airport and they're like, oh, whatever. Miss. People just stop when they see the double rainbows do that. And these, you know, people have seen hundreds of rainbows. And they just stop anyway. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, it doesn't really matter how long it lives. How does the fox, can you tell, are you afraid of ruining the story if you tell how the fox dies? Yeah, I am. (laughs) (laughs) Glad you asked. I'm not telling you how the fox died. Listen. We got real numbers here, and these people Carmen want to know how Carmen is that. reading the book right now. <laughs> there you go. Thank you. Yeah. Carmen is reading the book. Do you want to know I how the fox died? I don't want to spoil All right. Don't I tell think, me. Yeah. I'll find out. <laughs> I, I don't want to know how the fox dies <laughs> either. <laughs> Talk about anthropomorphism, because that's what everybody's going to say. That's um, what a guy like me is going to say. They're going to say, oh, you're anthropomorphizing foxes. Yeah, I know. Everybody. I mean, I've heard that so many times. I mean, that's... You're an un, you're unapologetic. I've co- I mean, as a park ranger, as a professor and, you know, students and that A word is a really, it's a word that a lot of people in the public like to say because they think that it's really pedantic, I think, but it's only just now becoming pedantic. Think People think it makes them sound sophisticated and pro-science if they accuse everybody of being anthropomorphic. But I think we need to... First, you got to identify... But you have to identify... Define it. Define it. It means that you are crediting human traits to an animal that's not human. So a human trait might be, for example, this is one of my students gave me this. Um, She said that Adam and Eve experienced or exhibited um, modesty. Mm -hmm. And uh, she said that's a a trait that we think only humans have. You mean when they covered themselves with leaves? Yeah, I never, I I needed, one of my undergraduates explained that to me and I really loved that. It was part of, it had to do with sort of like Neanderthals, but it's a question that I used to ask. I thought it was they were introduced to shame, not modesty. I'm not a Bible person, so maybe it's shame, but... Um, yeah, no, they were they were made that, to feel shame. Okay, they're made to feel shame, and so that's a human trait. And then if you see two little chipmunks mating, um, you say to yourself, they're just out there mating, and they don't care that all these people are standing around watching because they don't. They have ex- no shame. They ex- experience no shame, but really, but that's voyeurism. <laughs> On the part of the humans. But they're not it's, into voyeurism it's because they're animals. exhibitionism on the part of Sorry, the exhibitionism. Yes, thank you. No, the so voyeurist is the, the you're the voyeurist exactly. for watching these poor yeah, things. The animals are exhibitionists. So yeah, b- between the, the, the voyeurism and role play and exhibit, this is the most risque episode of the Meteor Podcast. Phil's going to walk out and protest. He's like, I didn't sign up for this kind of stuff. I'm a family man. No, this is what I want. <laughs> you, uh, you all went to the University it's, of Montana. This is finally going in a direction that Phil can get on board with. Yeah, the, uh, the giant red squirrels that overran the campus on the University of Montana. That exact scene you just described played out many times yeah. during my uh, stint at U of M. You went to U of M too. Yeah. Writing. You studied writing there. Yeah. Good school. You went to U of M too. I did. Yeah. yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. So now, me, you they, know what that anthropomorphism makes us what? is. 
I don't know what that makes us. It makes us grizz because you always oh, belong right. to the undergraduate school. So even when I'm in my regalia, well, maybe I shouldn't say this on the air. I my regalia is from the University of Montana. My undergraduate school instead of my PhD program. Gotcha. Oh. Because I just think you always belong to your undergraduate school, don't you? I don't. I don't. You know, I never. I don't look at those do institutions in that way. I thought I felt it was very transactional, and like I don't have any sort of when they call about fundraising. You just help everybody. No, I, I just have good. things that I'm dedicated to, but it's like I just viewed it as a transactional relationship. Ah. Uh-huh. I like I I I, I you know I go to Wayland Tire here in town. Okay. Um, if like I don't imagine Wayland Tire calling me, wanting me to send them extra money, like we engage in a transaction, and the transaction's done. Don't oh, call me later and be like, "Hey, you know, so you, don't you had your oil changed here and bought tires here. How about now just sending us money for nothing?" It was. Mm-hmm. I feel it was very transactional. When I but, dro- but I want to get back to uh, when I dropped out of the University of Montana, nobody ever called and said, "Hey, really missed you in class." <laughs> did you go back? I never did. No, no. Mom listens to these two, and she'll she'll back us. Be like, you know. Okay. Sorry. Go ahead. Anthropomorphism. So you know what it means. So you get what it means now. Where where you're. No. Saying. Yeah. I just want to make sure everybody. Uh, I want to make sure everybody's tracking. So if you s- pretend that an animal has a certain quality, a certain personality trait, people think you're pretending that it couldn't possibly. Then they say you're being anthropomorphic because it's not possible that an animal could possibly feel loyalty mm-hmm. or pain. I mean, I think I give an example. You write about buffalo, so you'll know this example from my book. Are you familiar with Dr. Hornaday's work? Oh, yeah. Okie dokie. So I've read Hornaday's journals. I love them. That's another plug. Uh, Dr. Hornaday's journals are fantastic. And so in He's the, emerged as a very controversial figure. He did, but yeah. you know, his family called me when I finished publishing an article about him they said it was the best piece they've ever – it wasn't just about him. It was about Buffalo. But they said it was the best piece they've ever read about him. And I was not uh, trying to be complimentary. I was very objective. I mean mm. I talked about all his warts. There were many of them. He had a lot of prejudices. But he did a lot of important things. Anyway, Buffalo cows, the females, uh, were getting – when they were getting shot a lot in the late 1800s, when one falls from a bullet, then the other ones just all kind of stand around. And Hornaday said – these animals are complicit in their own... I mean, he wanted to save them. He was furious. But still, he said, they're complicit in their own extinction because they're... St- he called them stupid brutes because they just stand around. And one's gone down. The the hunters, probably on the choo-choo train, are just going to keep shooting and they're going to shoot all of them. Yeah. And, and the hide he, hunters would even manipulate that exactly. behavior where they knew which ones... And so to how down come, to keep the other ones around. And why don't you believe some of the stories that say that they simply had loyalty? Now, when that character, what was his name? Custer. When Custer um, did his last retreat, running retreat, everybody uh, tried to m- turn that into his, they call it his stand, even though he was doing a running retreat, because it was considered honorable to stand in the face of danger. It makes you loyal Hmm. and brave because he was a human, and that's a human trait. But if an animal stands with her comrades, she's an idiot. They're foolish. You see, he Hornaday wasn't able to see that it's possible that Buffalo might have other characteristics, that they might just be simply standing with their comrades because they're loyal. I don't know the answer, but Hornaday doesn't know the answer either. I mean, both Hornaday and I are working from 
a bias and from very limited data, and there's really no way to know. I mean, sometimes science doesn't have an answer for you. You just have to use your instincts and your common sense. But neither Hornaday nor I uh, know what's going on, really. We could both be wrong. I don't know. But all I know is that he didn't consider it, and I'm, I just throw that out as a possibility. That's what I mean by anthropomorphism. So if I were to say those buffalo aren't uh, stupid, they're just uh, they're there because they're loyal, they, they're standing with their comrades because they're loyal, then you, if you were pedantic, would say to me, oh, you're so anthropomorphic, Raven, get the hell out of here. But but couldn't you also, because we often talk about um, and teach or try to teach our kids that, no, the animal's not being stupid. That's like this human thing we want to we want to attribute to it. It's just being an animal. So is there another version where they're not they're not being anthropomorphic but they're just being buffalo. Yeah, I think yeah. that, well. Go ahead, you, are, but you wrote a wonderful book on buffalo, by the way. That's another plug I want to put in. That's just uh, one of the books I own. It's great. I, yeah. I rebel against, okay, one, I discourage my kids from, like, outrageous anthropomorphism. I discourage that. I also, even more vehemently, discourage them from describing animals as stupid. Yeah, right. If something doesn't run away, I'm like, well, how is it benefit? You're not a risk. Why is it beneficial for it to expend all kinds of energy and put itself in the in the way of potential harm by running headlong into some other area to get away from something that's not risky? So when you say like the turkeys in our yard are stupid because they just stand there, um, maybe it'd be really stupid for it to run away from something that's not threatening it. And then yeah. it lands in the neighbor's fence and gets eaten by the neighbor's dog because it's retreating from something that poses no risk anyways. Maybe the turkey's really smart. And doesn't run away. And that's perfect. I mean, that's the first step that we have to take. And in Hornaday's time, animals were always considered, I mean, if they had a personality, even though stupidity is not technically a personality, it was always to to negate the ability of the animal and to say they're stupid and that they're dumb. And I agree with what both of you guys are saying. We need to get people and kids especially away from the idea of constantly calling animals dumb when they – you see skunks – getting run over by cars all the time. They're so dumb. Why are they? Because they can't evolve fast enough to realize that humans used to walk and then drag dogs with them, which are a little faster, and then horses. And in like 100 years, we now have semi-trucks doing 100 miles an hour on the same trail that humans used to walk on. Skunks can't evolve fast enough. It, we can't either. It's not that they're stupid. It's just that they haven't evolved with semi-trucks coming across the highway like this at these outrageous speeds. But we do have a bad habit of calling animals stupid when um, they do things that we don't under... Like you just explained to your kids, why would it make sense? For, I mean, how could they possibly know that, that that something like a semi-truck even exists? How could they possibly know that anything could move that fast on the road? So we should stop calling them stupid. So if you, as an them. academic, like, I don't know, what do you... Do you call yourself an academic? I don't know. Yeah, I've had tra- – sure, I know what you mean. I mean, I, I don't generally identify myself with labels because I generally prefer to identify myself with verbs rather than nouns. But, yes, I teach at the university. So I, I just want to get – like, I've been trained to get as to an academic. The, the, anthropomorphic, the anthropomorphism accusation being that you're training – Yeah. Um, I don't know. Like, It's I, one like, animal. It's just one animal. Well, I'm not accusing you of going against your training, yeah, no, but I'm no. saying that, that – well, to do a work like this, no doubt 
people from your world, from your professional world, will look at a work like this and maybe without reading it, but at a surface examination, it would be that you've gone over to the other side. Of course, of right? course. Do you care that they think that? Um, I just expected it. I knew from the t- – I mean, I hid my relationship with the Fox for ages and ages and ages. And I remember starting conversations with people that worked in the academy with me. And I would say something in the middle of a conversation. I might slip in something like, oh, and uh, Fox and I, and then someone that a colleague, a close colleague would say, just just as long as you're not being anthropomorphic, go ahead with your story. And then you're like, oh, uh oh. Really? They like police you? Oh, absolutely. It's a dirty so, secret, right? You had a dirty it secret. It was in those a dirty circles. secret, yeah. absolutely. I mean, it's a taboo. It absolutely is. So, yeah, I mean, I'm ready for it, but I, I, I understand that. I've been listening to that complaint for a long time. But you asked if there's a middle ground, and of course, there is a middle ground. It's just to say that. There's a less of a separation between humans and other animals than we previously believed. I'm not saying that humans and other animals have the exact same personality and the same emotions. There's so many animals. A worm is different than a beetle is different than a bird and every bird species is different. I'm just saying that we have this huge separation. Humans are way over here and all the other animals are there. It can't be possible that with the little differences in DNA that there are between humans and chimps, it can't be possible that all of these traits that we think only belong to humans and that chimps just simply eat and sleep and defecate and have sex. I mean, it, it's just not possible. Yeah. It, it, some of the things that we believe are only human traits, those have to accrue to other animals as well. Because our DNA, I mean, we're all related as Darwin has told us. And if you guys haven't read Darwin yet, there's a lot of plugs for him in my book. And I do try to explain as it fits in and very gently because the book's not encyclopedic and it's not like lecturing. Uh, It's a story. But I do have to mention Darwin once in a while because I have been trained in biology and I think Darwin's work is amazing. Uh, One way to describe your book would be you'd say like, oh, it's about a woman's relationship with a fox. (laughs) Okay. Okay. What... um, what do you like? What did you want to accomplish with it? What would be like the deeper explanation of what the book is? It's really about how humans should fit into nature, how it's part of us and we're part of it, and we should stop using that old fashioned term, Mother Nature, as though it's some authoritarian figure. Um, you don't like Mother Nature? No. So, you don't na- like the term? Nature's a community, it's mm-hmm. not an individual that we should revere. And be afraid of and honor. We are part of nature. We fit into it. And if we fit into it as a community, of course, we have responsibilities. But it's not something that we should revere and hold up over ourselves. It's our birthright. We're animals and we should fit ourselves in. Let me run this by. I'm working on a new tagline for, you know, just my general brand and what I do. And it goes like this. Mother nature is my co-pilot. Ooh, that's I, a good little bumper sticker. Do you you like that, or is that still like too like too much reverence for Mother Jim. Nature? So how about um, how about God isn't my co-pilot; He's the pilot. <laughs> that's what our pilot at Voyagers. When I worked at Voyagers National Park, that was uh, that was on the airplane that we we had to take ships everywhere yeah. because we had Voyagers. And Apostle Islands and Isle Royale. So, of course, we... That was how you got around. Yeah. Um, 
Man, that's something I was going to tell you about. Not Mother Nature. Are you seriously thinking about doing that? It's okay. I just, I think Mother Nature <laughs> kind of scares people. I mean, so your mother's probably some sweet little old lady, right? But Mother Nature does make it seem like. Keep in mind, Giannis is pagan. Yeah, they, uh, on, they, on the solstices, they drag logs around their house and whatnot. What's your business? Lighting you them on said fire. You, what's a tagline for what? Oh, just my brand here within the Meat Eater brand. Yanni brand. My personal brand. Oh, but you're totally within Meat Eater. Yes, ma'am. Oh, so, but you're... Oh, yeah. He, Mother, like, yeah, he, like... um. Mother Nature. Mm. He's, like, he makes materials. He's, he, like... Content producer. Produces. Yeah, he, like, produces ideas and materials. You guys use that word Mother Nature a lot, huh? No. Okay. Mm-mm. All right. In the book I'm currently writing, mm-hmm. which explores uh, children and nature mm-hmm. and how they relate, Um, I spent a lot of time talking about the perils of looking down at nature. And I talk a lot about the perils of looking up at it. Oh, good. And I try to explore, and I'm not a master at this, but I try to explore ways of how to encourage your children to see it like on an eye-to-eye level. And that's so right. That's the book. I mean, that's a more important part of the book or equally important part. I mean, obviously, friendship is really important, friendship in general and then interspecies friendship. But, yeah, I want people to feel like they fit in with nature, that it's not. I forgot about the fact that some people look down on nature and that. I don't know very many people that do, but I understand that. So, really, that comes from some Yeah, I get into that a little bit. I don't know that it's – when I describe looking down at it, I think that it would be – it manifests more as um, very willing to be dismissive of it. Right, and that we're the most important species in the world, and we're in charge of everything, and we have dominion over everything. Mm. You don't find I many people who would say, like, I hate nature. No, but you but think in action, say- in action, uh, an, an, an outside observer might look at certain actions and be like, man. That guy is not like nature. <laughs> well, sure. All the development that's going on around um, Bozeman and in the valley and all over Montana. Some people, if you say, can we have a little bit of regulation here so that we keep a little bit of open space so that we don't kill every living thing that's not human or dog or cat. And then people would say, would accuse you of not putting humans first. Mm-hmm. And so I understand that. I mean, there are people who. Oh, and you'd argue, oh, no, no, I am. <laughs> I'm thinking about humans right yeah, now. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, you, you, that's yeah. what you're trying to teach your kids. Yeah. So that makes – is it a kid's book? No, it's, oh, it's, it's, book. For, it's, for grown, it's for grown-ups. Yeah, but that's have, right. Who, it's, for, it's for grown-ups who have kids in their lives. Yeah, yeah, and my book is for grown-ups like, who are kids. It doesn't need to be your kids, but like yeah. kids in your lives. Yeah, 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 that's right. That's That would be perfect. I mean, that's that sounds a lot like what I'm – what I thought I did with Fox, exactly. Helping people to realize we're part of it. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. And don't look down, don't, and definitely don't look up at it either because, I mean, I have to revere it. We are it. Okay, give people the big plug, uh, how to find it, how to find more about you. If you, don't, do, you do you want to be found out about? <laughs> I know, you're, I know from, from Cindy, your publisher, I know you're very private. Yeah, so... Um, you don't even like to do this kind of stuff. I have... Right. This might be my first pod. I think I've done some pods, but this is my first big studio thing, though. Uh, I have a, a website, but it doesn't have, but it won't help you. I mean, I like I paid for the domain name and it just sits there. So there's no point in me giving you that. Um, but you can buy the book at Barnes & Noble 
if you're in Bozeman, Country Bookshelf. And if you're not one of those people that wants Jeff Bezos to stay in space, you can get it from Amazon. And I think um, I do want to say one more thing. You know how you can be really diplomatic? No, I want to say one more thing. No, there's a way you go. You say um, anywhere books are sold. Anywhere books are sold. I wanted to say one more thing. Though. Oh, okay. you can, if you just want to listen to it, you can get that audio, it's called. You can get an audio book, and I just found out yesterday you can. Did you do your own read? No, but I listened to the gal who did Sons the read, and I listened they, to a They bunch had someone of, else do the read? They did, but I, I listened it, to a few of them. You know, winding, windy Don't let and that happen, windy man. are the <laughs> same words. Yeah, I know. I listened to her. She got windy and windy mixed up. Don't let They're them. spelled the same. Don't let some person, you know, I don't, I don't yeah. know who, I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't like, had it your publisher's a dear book. friend of mine and I owe a lot of my, I owe a lot of my career and life to her. I if it was her, her decision, it if anymore. it was her decision, I'll fight with her about it. it they should not have allowed that. You should, they, that should not have happened. You should read your own damn book. You need a professional studio though. I thought that was the deal. And so it was the time of COVID. That was the problem. It was taped during COVID. No, you go I mean, I don't studio. think that was the only problem. I think they never considered having me read it, but we did have to hire a gal with it who who had a studio. Well, you might have needed to practice for a long time. And had a studio. Yeah. No, I know uh. you have to practice because I make videos for my students and you have to keep going over, getting re- repeating everything over and over because you noticed you said something wrong or there was too much of a pause there and whatever. So it takes a long time. I'm bringing I know, too much personal stuff into this. No, wait, one more yeah. thing. Audio and and the download onto the little machines that you can read from. You can do that. I just found that out. Yesterday, so anywhere books are sold. Anywhere books are sold. Barnes yeah. and Noble. Barnes and Noble. Hell, even Amazon. Even Amazon. <laughs> and so <laughs> that's right. No, thanks everybody who buys it for sure. Yeah, I think it's uh, and it's reads great. It more so. Um, you're becoming. Uh, all of this is making you become less of a hermit. Well, do you think you're going to go back into hiding? Not you're hiding. Are you go. Do you think you're going to become? Do you uh, do you imagine now being more? Uh, I just have lasting to, effects of I have social to put interactions. In a plug about hermits and such, um, and you'll read this in my book also. People who live away from other people, we're not trying to hide from people. We don't dislike people. We're not trying to get away from people. We just love the things that people get rid of. And that's why I want to live in a place where I can sit outside and watch the badgers and the skunks and the eagles and the foxes and where it's quiet and I can hear what I want to hear like the wind. And I don't have to see trucks coming by all day long. It's not because I don't like humans. It's because I love the things that humans get rid of. And if I was really misanthropic, I would live in a city because if you really dislike humans, then you want to live where there's a lot of humans so that you can torture them and whatever the hell you do Oh, with yeah, them. you but can I manipulate mean, misanthropes them. live around lie people. Lie to them. Yeah, so the bad guys who don't like people are the ones that live where there's people, right? The people that are really don't like people, they they live in cities, not yeah, in like that. country. Yeah, that's a seed. I figured yeah, that out. It needs work, but that's a good seed of an idea. I like that. Thanks. There's, there's your tagline, Yanni. <laughs> I haven't put that on a bumper sticker. It, but I've been working on that idea. I think no, I like it. There's really something a, there, man. I think there is for sure. Don't you? Oh, yeah. yeah. No, yeah, that's, yeah. that's a compelling point. I'm gonna I'm gonna like lay in bed and unpack that one. Good. That's a good one. I've never thought about humans getting rid of silence, but 
It's getting true. What? Getting rid of silence. Yeah. It's one of my sure. favorite things about where we live is the silence. And uh like a death metal band that covers um Sound of Silence. No. The Sound of Silence. Oh, it's so good. It's disturbed. It's, yeah, that's the name it's of the so band. So good. All right, Kathy Raven. The title of the book, easy to remember. Fox and I. Fox and I. And then Carmen Van Bianchi, third appearance on the podcast. Yay. Her new company will, not a company, her new nonprofit will be called. Home Range Wildlife Research. Yeah. How do, how do, do, you, do you want people going and uh, looking you up on, on social media and stuff? Or do you hate that kind of stuff? I, I don't have any of that. Good for you. <laughs> Good. Less competition for my account. Um, do you care to have people find you? Well, uh, we do have a website, homerange.org. And that's the way to go. Yeah. You don't want them like emailing you and stuff like that. Oh, they can email me. But I not so badly that you want to give out your email address. I wouldn't do that. Yeah, probably not. Yeah. There's got to be uh, <laughs> contact us at homerange.org. Well, that's true. Yes. I have a home range email. Oh, Makes there you go. So really... you got something to get and you check yeah. it. So someone yeah. wants to reach out to you and say, hey, I got a study idea yep. for you. Yeah. yeah. Or I'm a budding young biologist. I need yeah. a job. Yep. I got a wolf story to tell you about. Or sure. I got a gajillion dollars and I'm looking to put it in a nonprofit. Especially those. Yeah. Yes. Homerange.org. Yep. Okay. Fox and I, homerange.org. Two very different things, but both worthwhile checking out. Thank you, everybody. Hey, you ever needed something for your home but don't have the cash or credit to pay for it? You can do that at Aaron's. Yep, you can rent to own appliances like washers, dryers, or refrigerators, furniture for your living room or bedroom, even tech. Plus, Aaron's has great brands like HP, Samsung, and Ashley. Life's always changing. Keep it, return it, upgrade it. Aaron's fits your life instead of the other way around. So check out your nearest Aaron's store or visit Aaron's.com to see what I'm talking about. Approval isn't guaranteed and some restrictions apply. You got to see your local store for details. Decked drawer systems. I've always loved Decked, as is, but it's even better now because they just redesigned their drawer system in storage cases from the ground up. They got the Deco case line. These cases are as tough, if not tougher, than Pelican case or Go boxes. Totally waterproof and dustproof. You can literally run over them in your truck and they will be fine. High quality latches and handles make them really easy to use. They look great. They are made in the USA. To check it out, go to decked.com slash meat eater. Get yourself free shipping.